We will kick it off in just a minute. For those of you who are just finding your way to us, we are the History Club. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We do this every Thursday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we do a lot of cool events. Uh, we've done stuff on uh, African-American history. We've done stuff on women's history. We've done stuff on the New York Times 1619 Project. We've done stuff on histories of misinformation. We've done a lot of cool events over the six months we've been together. So if those things sound like they're up your alley or they are of interest to you, please do click on the History Club icon above my name and follow the club. You can also follow me if you want to get notifications and updates about things History Club is doing. And last week, for those of you who missed it, we celebrated our six-month anniversary. We started in late August, early September of 2020. It's amazing that we have gotten to this point. Uh, we started with just a few people in a room, and now we have over 63,000 people who follow the club, which is pretty awesome. And it's really cool that there's that many people out there who believe that history is important and that history matters and that we should be thinking about history as we have these conversations about current events. So a um, couple things before we get started here, just in terms of preamble. Uh, I'm Jason. I host the History Club. As you can probably guess, tonight I'm super, super excited to welcome Josh Rogan an amazing journalist and commentator on foreign affairs. He's got a new book out, which we'll talk about, and that book is a great segue into thinking about this question of U.S.-China relations in a historical perspective. There are lots of historical resonances in Josh's book, and I want to get into that tonight. Uh, I've also invited Roger Huang uh, to be here tonight, who is um, one of the founders of a club here on Clubhouse that thinks about China and China-related issues. Um, he's an incredibly thoughtful guy, and I wanted to get his perspective as well. So lots to get to tonight, and I kind of wanted to set the stage, too, because I think, you know, the, the, what is happening with U.S.-China relations and sort of the growth and development of China more broadly is, I think, in my humble opinion, and I want to ask, I want to hear what Josh thinks in a second, I think this is one of the largest developments over the past generation and a half that probably most Americans know little to nothing about. And particularly over the past four years, we have been consumed by our internal domestic politics. It's been Trump, Trump, Trump. And, you know, we've had obviously uh, protests and uh, civil unrest and we've had coronavirus and we've had battles over funding and border walls. And all those things are important conversations. But in the midst of that, China's influence across the globe continues to grow. And it's kind of amazing when you take a step back and think about how much China has grown and how much it has expanded its influence over the past 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, China now has the world's largest navy. They also have the world's largest army. They have either the second uh, or the first largest economy, depending on which metrics you use. Some people are probably aware of their Belt and Road Initiative, where they are literally spending billions of, in of dollars to build up infrastructure in nations across the country. Uh, they have uh, purchased ports in Brazil, UAE, Sri Lanka, Greece, Myanmar, Israel, Djibouti, Morocco, Spain, Italy, Belgium, Ivory Coast, Egypt, just to name a, a few. I mean, they have really expanded their influence, their economic influence, their political influence, their geopolitical influence to all corners of the globe. And it's really a remarkable development. And it's happened under you know, six or seven presidents, not just Trump, not just Obama. This has been happening since the 1970s under Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush again, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. So it's an amazing story. It has huge consequences for the United States and for the, the world more broadly. And it's one that I think has really not, you know, Americans really have not fully grasped the whole picture here. 
And so I was particularly glad to get Josh into the club tonight because I wanted to think about his book, which really looks at the past four years of the U.S.-China relationship and the role of the Trump administration in that, and then to zoom out and look at some of the, the broader dynamics and the bigger picture, because I really don't think we can understand this U.S.-China relationship and where it might be headed without grounding it in history, and in particularly the history of the past 40 to 50 years and how this evolution has unfolded, uh, both from the Chinese perspective and from the U.S. perspective. So there's a lot to get into tonight. We're not going to be able to cover all of it in the short time that we have together, but we're really, really fortunate to have a journalist who's been working on this and digging into this for the past, what, 10 to 12, 15 years. So without further ado, let me call up Josh and uh, let me get the conversation started with him before we get everybody else involved. How are you, my friend? Good evening, Jason. Good evening, audience. Yeah, great. Thanks for being here, man. Really, really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to maybe start just kind of getting a little bit of your background so people kind of know where you're coming from on these questions. So, you know, you are a journalist and you've been in this field now for 15, 20 years. You can, you know, tell me exactly. How did you even get into sort of writing and thinking and studying the U.S.-China relationship and what's been happening with China more broadly? Well, what happened was, honestly, I wanted to become a scholar of U.S.-Japan relations, and I studied Japanese at the George Washington University in 1990, and then I spent <laughs> a year teaching English in Yokohama, Japan, and I studied at a Japanese university called Sophia University, uh, Jochi in Japanese, and my dream in life was just to be a guy who writes and thinks about the U.S.-Japan relationship. And my parents were convinced that I decided to go to Japan for study abroad to get as far from them as humanly possible. But that was not the primary reason. It was because uh, the country and the region more broadly just fascinated me in that way. Uh, but when I got back from living in Japan for a year, I realized that there was no uh, upward mobility in the U.S.-Japan think tank industry, okay? The, there were no jobs, I wasn't getting hired. And, uh, you know, the US-Japan relationship is like one of those that is like basically fine, you know? And therefore there's not a ton of people uh, paid to study it and look at it, et cetera. And my friends who had chosen like more problematic countries like Iran and Russia and China, uh, they had much brighter you know, career prospects in the field of thinking and writing in Washington. So I got a job as a paralegal at a, a law firm in Philadelphia near where my parents lived. And uh, the, the law firm actually happened to be doing some amazing work on uh, suing the government of Sudan for genocide for the atrocities they were perpetrating in what was then southern Sudan. And my job was to pour through the research uh, over this case to prove that the government of Sudan was perpetrating this genocide in conjunction with a lot of different corporate and national actors. And what I found sitting there over these months as I'm filling out like law school applications and wondering what the heck I'm going to do with my life is that there was this trove of State Department documents that were all about China's actions in southern Sudan. And the they were basically State Department cables. And in 2021, stories of Chinese malfeasance in Africa are, are pretty easy to come by. But in 2003, this was a relatively unsourced, unevidenced kind of uh, su subject area. And here was a bunch of really crazy information. Not only was the Chinese government, you know, plying the Sudanese 
regime with all sorts of a mix of sort of military, diplomatic and economic favors and bribes, and etc. They were actually shipping weapons, including strategic weapons to this uh, pariah regime. Then they were shipping you know, thousands of basically what were Chinese prisoners as slaves to build the oil infrastructure and fueling the Sudanese armies, Sudanese armies, you know, atrocities against the people who were living on top of the land with all the oil. And it was so organized on the one hand and so maniacal on the other hand, I sort of like, I was shocked, frankly. And I sent the documents to my friend, uh, Joshua Eisenman, who's uh, at the time working for a think tank now as a professor at Notre Dame University. And he said, oh my God, this is crazy stuff. We have to published on this. And we co-wrote an op-ed in the Straits Times of Singapore entitled China Must Play by the Rules in Oil-Rich Sudan. And I didn't think that anyone would really care. But apparently the article got a lot of attention because I got called into the senior partner's office the next day and basically fired. I wasn't fired, but I was hanging by a thread. I was, you know, Apparently they didn't like the fact that their 24-year-old paralegal was making international news on their case. So I was, you know, while I was waiting for the be told to clear out my desk, I started surfing the internet for job openings. And the one that I saw was to be a news assistant at the Japanese newspaper in Washington, D.C. It's called the Asahi Shinbun. And I figured, what the hell? I submitted an application. I sent them that article about China and Sudan. And I got the interview. They called me in. They told me I'd broken a big story. They offered me the job. And three weeks later, I moved back to Washington and started to work as a journalist. Okay. And so I literally fell ass backwards into journalism and the and the the thing that start started me that sparked my interest in it was this story about China's behavior and the Chinese government's behavior outside of its own borders. And the op-ed that we wrote, me and Josh Eisman in the Straits Times, argued that this behavior was not just an issue for China or Sudan, but it, uh, an issue for not only the international community but for the United States and its own position and its own interest and its own in defense of its own values. Long story short. When I worked at this newspaper, the Asahi Shimbun, this was that time in Washington when the the whole story of China was starting to really turn. You know, in 2000 and 2001, China had been granted PNTR status and largely accepted into the uh, international community under the premise that if we encourage China's economic success, that the Chinese system would liberalize economically and that would in turn liberalize it politically and that would in turn solve all the rest of our problems. And it was becoming clear in the mid-aughts that this wasn't really the case and that once the help was offered to China to improve its economy and its development, there was no way to enforce that other side of the bet where they were going to liberalize. But there was still a lot of debate over whether what was going on and what was what we should do about it, if anything. You know, I kind of like journalism, so I kept going with it, and I moved to a number of different publications. I, we don't have enough time to go through all of them, but some of them are the Congressional Quarterly, the Daily Beast, Newsweek, Bloomberg, and the Washington Post, where I work right now. And over that 17-year period, to be precise, I watched you know Washington slowly but surely wake up to the realization that this grand bargain of open engagement exchange for the, for the promise of uh, Chinese Communist Party liberalization was just not working out. And, you know, it, there wasn't a, a monolith of uh, opinions, but there was a lot less over time disagreement about the prognosis than about the solutions. And, you know, at the same time, there was a generational turnover going on inside the government and, and around Washington uh, establishments. 
And the younger China hands were starting to realize that this 40 years uh, strategy of open engagement in exchange for the hope of liberalization and peace and coexistence uh, was increasingly obviously absurd. And that under Xi Jinping, the Chinese uh, government had decided to go another way. And, you know, we can get into why that is and what could have been done better. And maybe, you know, we didn't pursue engagement uh, strenuously enough, or maybe we should still pursue it right now. And that's a fair debate and with fair people on all, on both sides. But to my mind, it seems like the prerequisite of dealing with the China challenge is to realize that uh, China has changed under Xi Jinping and that our response, therefore, has to change. And, you know, while I was while all of this was happening, you know, we were the world was also going through some other monumental shifts, you know, the the sort of realization that the globalization had uh, left behind a large segment of populations in Western countries that were disillusioned with the idea and the simultaneous rise of foundational technologies that changed the way that governments and people interact in their daily lives. And China's rise was part and parcel of both of those things, but also its own phenomenon. And then those three big trends ran into something that nobody expected, which was the election of Donald Trump. And once that happened, I knew that things were gonna get pretty crazy. So I just sat down and tried to cover it as much as I could. And over those four years, I wrote as much about it as I could. And then when I got the book contract, I did another 300 or so additional interviews. And I just thought it was important that I tried as hard as I can, and not just me, a lot of journalists working at a lot of outlets, sort of not working together, but all picking at the same puzzle, all touching different parts of the same elephant to try to figure out what was going on in the US-China relationship. Because just that getting that far, just to figure out what was going on was such a monumental task that it took an entire community of people, journalists and experts to take a stab at it. And this book is an attempt to, to round up that knowledge and uh, record it, at least for the first draft of history. Yeah, and it's you know it's a it's a really good book. It's a really good read. Um, lots of questions uh, that came to my mind while reading the book. You know, things to sort of push on and and dig into a little bit. So I, I want to do all that uh, real quickly. We should just tell people what the name of the book is if people want to pick it up. The book is called Chaos Under Heaven. It's a quote that's attributed to Mao. We couldn't really find. We tried as hard as we could. We couldn't find out if Mao actually said it. But the quote quote goes like this: "There is chaos under heaven. The situation is excellent." And, you know, purportedly, this was Mao describing the advantage that he had as the head of the Chinese Communist Party as the world was in disarray. And the chaos aptly described the situation inside the Trump administration and in our political environment over the last four years. Yeah. And you've already touched on a lot of things that came to my mind when I read this book. One of them is just this exploding sort of, quote unquote, industry of China. Right. I mean, as you mentioned, right, there are no think tank jobs to work on Japan or maybe you could work on the, you know, work at the Wilson Center if you want to study Japanese. And there might be uh, U.S. relations and there might be one fellowship position a year there. But there's an entire industry now in Washington around the China-U.S. relationship. And I think that has serious ramifications, both budgetarily and militarily. And it also has a lot of resonances with the Cold War, uh, not necessarily in a good way. And so that's why I was pleased to see in your book, too, that you had a sort of a section there on the Cold War and sort of how this historical memory of the Cold War has permeated and maybe infected our thinking when it comes to the relationship with China. Um, 
but in particular, that's sort of a, I think maybe a useful starting point for really digging into some of the some of the issues here. You know, the, the relationship with the United States and China obviously dates back much farther than the early 2000s. And, you know, some scholars have pointed out that the U.S. and China were actually allies for much of the 20th century. We were on the same side of the conflicts in World War One and World War Two. Obviously, that changes in 1949 with the Communist Revolution and in the 1950s with the Cold War. And for the 50s and the 60s, China and the U.S. are adversaries. And then in the 1970s, things change again, first with Nixon and Kissinger, and then with the death of Mao and China opening up to the world. So this arc of the U.S.-China relationship obviously extends much farther back than, you know, the last president or the two presidents that we've had. When you were writing the book, when you're doing your journalism, how do you think about this sort of longer arc of history and this story between these two nations and how that informs how things have evolved over the past decade or so? Right, right. Okay, you packed a lot into that. Uh, uh, yeah, small uh, question for you. <laughs> setup. Uh, let me start where you started. Okay, is there an industry building around China and is that a bad thing? I think I would slightly disagree with you, actually, Jason, on this one, because what I witnessed is that like, there always was an, a China industry, a pretty robust one, but the problem was that it was controlled by the China hands. And, and you know, this is, yes, it's a smaller group of people that are involved in China policy right now, but it's a group of people with a very specific sort of perspective and a, a very specific sort of set of relationships and, you know, a very specific sort set of biases and a very specific set of rules about how they talk and think about China that they've built amongst themselves. And not having been a China hand per se, you know, was I'm never an academic, I'm not a historian, just a journalist. But, you know, I got to know all these China hands and it seems very clear to many of us uh, in Washington that, uh, you know, the issue with China, because it had become so important to so many uh, people in so many parts of U.S. society, uh, necessarily required a more robust participation in a more robust debate. In other words, if we're going to talk about China in our Chinese influence in our academic system or in our culture or in Hollywood or in Wall Street or in the tech industry or in our public health, for example, well, th all of those st stakeholders really have to be at the table one way or the other. So I think on one hand, it's a very good development that a lot more people are interested in China and a lot more people are ha have a stake in a, in a, in a, in a real piece of the China challenge to 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 participate in and, and to have influence over. You know, is it a is, is it a cold war? Well, you know, I go into this a lot in the book and you know the the the, the there's we can get into it as much as you want, but the, a couple quick things that I would say are these, you know, we have to first of all realize that um the the sort of term Cold War has been abused beyond a lot of usefulness, okay? And it's often used as a cudgel by those who wish to attack anyone who seeks to confront the CCP's escalating military aggression, economic aggression, internal repression, and increasing interference in free and open societies. And, you know, what the Chinese Communist Party propaganda outlets constantly blare out all day long is basically Oh, what you want a cold war? You okay? Well, if you want a cold war, we'll give you a cold war. It's 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 half ridicule and half threat, right? And this is part of their sort of overall sort of PR strategy to say, oh well, you you know, th th this is a, a a problem that's really too big to really you know tackle, so you might as well not tackle it. And that feeds into 
you know, a bias for inaction amongst those inside the American policy infrastructure who, uh, for whatever reason, don't want to change the policy and that we can get into that. Some are, uh, you know, bureaucratic intransigence, some are corrupted elites, and uh, some are people who generally believe that the risks of action are greater than the risks of inaction, which is a, a fair thing to think, but not something that I particularly agree with. So we have to understand that a lot of there's a lot of people abusing that term Cold War to make it into some sort of cartoonish, you know, thing that we must avoid. Now, when, you know, when the, I think the best, so in other words, this is not another Cold War, big C, big W, but there are elements of the Cold War that certainly apply. And in the sense that the Cold War provides the last, you know, most recent historical, historic example of a sort of systems battle, right? A, 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 where the two biggest powers in the world have two different visions for a world order, two different ideologies, two different political systems. Uh, and those two political systems at the end of the day uh, don't mesh well. It's not to say that they can't coexist. It's not to say that one has to defeat the other, but let's face it, uh, they, they are counter to each other in very fundamental ways in terms of how they treat citizens, in terms of how they treat the global commons, in terms of they, how they treat the rule of law, trade, human rights, you name it, okay? So what the best explanation I ever heard was from uh, a, a CIA analyst named Michael Collins who said, it's a systems battle, it's, it's, it's a kind of a Cold War, but it's not the Cold War, okay? That, and there will, be, there will always be people who will say, oh, well, we shouldn't make this an ideological battle. It doesn't have to be an ideological battle. But as I detail in the book, for Xi Jinping, it is, okay? If you listen to what he says and what he writes, he's waging an ideological and political battle. He has a very clear vision for where he wants the world order to go. It's not the same as the vision that our government and frankly, our society uh, has pr professed or, or, or would benefit from, frankly. Uh, so the, the, there is an ideological battle going on. I think that ship has sailed. Now, yeah, well, I, I, just real quick there, I appreciate all that. I think that's, that's a lot of that is right on. I, I totally agree with you too, that the Cold War as a phrase has just become, you know, so overused so as to be meaningless, but it's also the actual history of the Cold War has become sort of nostalgized, I think, in some circles. Well, that's so what I was words, getting to next. Yeah, exactly. So there's this sort of narrative that sort of, you know, that uh, it all sort of worked out the way it was supposed to work out. And, you know, a couple of influential people in Washington made the right decisions. And so, you know, we'll do something in History Club on a whole series probably yeah. on the Cold War, because the way Americans remember the Cold War is very different from the way historians actually think and write about sure. the Cold War. But we, we can all agree that we won the Cold War. OK, so that in other words, we, we just don't agree on why we won the Cold War. Was it because the Helsinki Accords were so clever that we roped the Soviet Union into diplomatic largesse? Was it that we starved them of their capital and the, the economic and, and outspent them until their ec economic system collapsed under its own weight? Was it Voice of America and then the Soviet people just demanded so much you know, freedom that they cracked their own system? Did it crush under its own contradictions? Nobody, we, we don't know, right? But, you know, in, in a sense, you know, we should at least agree that like the Cold War is not a, a, a story of, of defeat. It's a story of our system triumphing over a competitive system. And there are lessons to be learned there. And I think a lot of the strategies can be applied. And, I, and what, what, what's really interesting in the book is that because people so misremember, and you're absolutely right, Jason, everybody misremembers the Cold War, including the Trump administration. So as the, one of the stories in the book is how 
the head of policy planning at the State Department, a, a professor, a woman named Kyron Skinner, gives this speech at this Washington think tank. Uh, and she's, you know, talking about Cannon and the law and the letter X in the Cold War and how she she's going to write the new letter X for the Cold War. And she's misremembering the history of the Cold War as she's professing to be the next Cannon. And just in and that's like a perfect like Washington scene of like people chattering about like history. They don't know what they're talking about, especially if they're in the positions of power. It seems a little absurd. And. What was doubly absurd is that no one in that room thought that this woman was in a position to guide Trump administration foreign policy because anyone who watched Trump administration foreign policy knew that it was so dysfunctional that they didn't really have that kind of capacity to build the kind of letter X or a long telegram or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, on a good day in Washington, the history of the Cold War is misremembered as Kennan devised containment and containment won the Cold War. So we got to have another cannon and another containment for the Cold War, which is a historic, totally nonsense. You know, what actually happened was that there were d deep struggles from the very beginning. And Kennan was opposed to most of the Cold War policy that his successors ended up implementing. And the militarization of the Cold War was something that he was very much against. And as you know, well, Jason, China became a pawn sort of in the U.S.-Russia Cold War, especially during the Korean War. And the, the, that was sort of where a lot of uh, the problems in the U.S. relationship with the CCP really were rooted. And that's where our commitment to then Formosa, now Taiwan, was anchored. And, you know, some things were good, but like a lot of mistakes were made. And, you know, so to understand the U.S.-China history in the midst of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War is also a fascinating subject. Yeah, and I would say that another quote unquote lesson, of course, I'm always wary about history offering very clear lessons. But if we want to use that phrase, a very a quote unquote lesson from the Cold War was that the the military industrial complex that we live with today, where we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on military, um, you know, fighter jets and tanks and divisions all over the world. And, and that's all an outgrowth of this sort of, we have to do whatever it takes to contain the Soviet Union. And a lot of bad, really bad things <laughs> were done uh, in the name of that agenda. And um, you know what I worry about with China and where we are right now is that by using this language of the Cold War and by framing it even in that historical parallel, we set ourselves up to go down a similar path. And you can already see this in Washington with various armed forces, uh, you know, divisions, whether it be the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, using China and the, the you know, the quote unquote threat posed by China as a justification for more money, more budgets, more planes, more ships, more resources. Um, and so, you know, if we're going to think about how we analogize this situation and what what those analogies do for us. Um, I think sometimes this analogy of the Cold War transplanting our relationship with the Soviet Union onto in the 20th century, onto our relationship with China in the 21st century um, can be really problematic. And um, I don't know from your reporting uh, or from things that you've written about in the book, and how does that strike you? How do you, do you feel like that's, that has merit? Yeah, no, I, I largely agree with you. I take a, a couple of very small issues, you know, uh, it, with the way you framed it, just in the sense that I, I don't just see that military industrial complex abusing the China issue to justify 
whatever crap they already wanted to do. Everyone in Washington is doing that. The Republicans <laughs> exactly, are doing that. Yes. Trump is doing that. Exactly. The Democrats are doing that. Right now, uh, Chuck Schumer is leading this huge bill for the Democrats called Enduring Frontier, some nonsense. And he, you know, he's, he put out a call to members, whatever China issues you have, let's throw them into this bill. So guess what? Now you're whatever issue you had is a China issue. OK, so, you know, it happens to be a hot topic and everyone will try to push a, a China sticker on whatever it is that because it's the train that's moving. And, you know, also the China issue has been hyper politicized and that's a terrible thing. So I think both the military industrial complex. Uh, it, yes, that's a problem. Um, but that's not the only uh, uh, institution abusing the China issue. But I think more importantly, actually, you know, the what, the main difference between the systems conflicts, the generational, whatever you want to call it, the 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 strategic competition clusterfuck that we're in with China right now. The difference between that and the Soviet Union is it's actually not military based. Is that no matter how, you know what the the hard power balance is, the the least likely scenario is some sort of you know, hot war, although we can't discount it altogether, the, the, the competition is actually much more on the economic uh, and even cultural and technology uh, spheres. And that is going on right now. So, you know, yes, there's always a risk of overreaction. You know, we can't do everything. We have to decide where our priorities are. We have to decide what our resources are. We have to make trade-offs. These are hard decisions. You know, the China challenge is so uh, ubiquitous that it touches so many different things that, you know, in the end, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very hard to come up with the resources, the money, frankly, to compete with it on all these fronts. You mentioned Belt and Road Initiative. You know, that's $3 trillion that the Chinese are throwing into projects in developing countries, some of which are fine, a lot of which are just rife with the most horrendous kind of corruption and uh, economic and ecological, you know, damage you can inflict on a country, you know, and we can't fight something with nothing. So, yes, I, I, I hear a lot of people these days uh, calling for restraint, calling for moderation. Sure. You know, sign me up for that. At the same time, you know, we have to realize that that I think and maybe perhaps this is one lesson that we should take from the other Cold War is that this is the most important thing. And this has to be at the top of our priority list. And there are very few, if any, foreign policy and national security issues that don't have some connection to the China challenge. And that's not because we're making them out to be 10 feet tall. It's because the reality is that the Chinese Communist Party has made a decision to expand its power and influence into more areas of our lives and in our institutions and in our media and in our markets and in our tech industry. And that's just something that we have to deal with. And we can't overreact, but we can't underreact. And that's sort of the discussion that we need to have. Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked about this with with several people, but um, and I, you know, I, I haven't done as much research into it as you have. But, you know, to me, on the surface, it seems like what's really at stake in this relationship is American exceptionalism. Right. And, and this is this is sort of the underlying anxiety that surrounds all of this. Um, and obviously, there are legitimate concerns when it comes to various issues. I think the ecological one is an important one that often doesn't get brought up. Uh, but really, what's what's what I do you mean by American exceptionalism? The, ang the anxiety that we're no longer number one. 
You know, the, 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 the thought that in Washington and other circles of power in the United States that we may no longer be the world's largest economy, that we may no longer be the world's you know, uh, largest army or the world's largest navy, that we may not have the biggest seat at the table at the United Nations or the WTO, that we may not be able to shape the world in our image. I think this is an underlying anxiety that, uh, that you know, we have, again, has historical roots, right? Since World War II, uh, over the past, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, we have been in that position and it has been to the American advantage to do so. And we've done good things with that. We've done bad things with that. We could have a whole separate history club discussion on that. But the prospect that a new, another nation might step into that chair, um, and again, as you said, particularly one that has the, the record that it does on human rights and other things, to me, that seems like an underlying anxiety throughout this entire Yeah, uh, I, 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 I have to say I have to, I have to agree with that, but you know, I think it's somewhat unfortunate that in our discussion of how to deal with China's rise, and, and I blame a lot of this on the last administration, is that it's often portrayed as a sort of spat between the United States and China, rather than what I think it is, which is a, a, a worldwide response to the problems of uh, inherent in the CCP's actions as China rises. In other words, you know, if there's one thing that the pandemic made clear is that, you know, it's not just Americans who are sort of looking around all of a sudden as we sit in our homes and thinking, wait a minute, is the Chinese government's uh, behavior and character and actions and policies, are they affecting us? Get, spoiler alert, they are, right? But, you know, it took a lot of different people, a lot of time in a lot of American industries and for this debate to really bubble up, right? Uh, you know, are Confucius Institutes on U.S. campuses a threat or are they benign? Well, the answer is some are and some aren't. You know, are, are, are research institutions compromised by Chinese uh, theft? Some are, some aren't. Are Wall Street firms aiding and abetting the, the, the theft of our uh, technology and our, uh, uh, our, and our capital wealth in order to support companies that are building the machine that's pointed at us and committing genocide at the same time? Well, kind of, yes. And all of those issues over the course of 2017 to like, let's say February 2020, were very sort of you know bubbling up at the surface, but the pandemic changed that, and it and it, it and I think it changed it in a lot of other countries as well. And you know when when we saw how sort of China, the rising power, used its first mover advantage. Remember, the first country to have the virus, so the first country to get out of it, the country with the most knowledge about it, the country with the most masks, the country with the most power and influence to help other countries. And what did they do? They turned around and they uh, uh, used it to protect their political interests and to advance their party agenda at the expense of the health and wellness of people all over the world. I think that really changed the game, honestly. And, you know, yes, Americans are solipsistic and I live in Washington and we think that we should run the world because we know everything better. All that is true. I can't sit here and deny any of that. That's totally true. But, you know, if we're being honest, the rise of China and the CCP's behavior is not just about, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, we're not going to get to run the world anymore. It's about whether or not all of the other countries who are not super thrilled and 100 percent juiced up about having an American hege hege hegemony. Uh, well, what now they get a little taste of what the Chinese hegemony is going to look like. And guess what? They don't like it. And now the question, I think, which is something that we don't know the answer to, is whether or not the 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 challenge can be reframed uh, to uh, a really a struggle between, uh, you know, the the model that China is putting forward, and really not only 
and they say that they don't do this, but they're doing it, exporting to all over the world of digital authoritarianism, you know, totalitarianism, and, you know, real kind of like, I mean, I hate to use this word, but Orwellian craziness. And do we, is that going to be the model that, that, that is going to spread through our globe and what's going to be the result of that? And can we protect ourselves from that if we don't choose to go along with it? And, or is that going to start affecting us in our homes or on our soil? Right. And so, yeah, I think, I, I think that's actually the, the better way to look at it. Although I totally agree. I think that is actually the real issue here. And I think a lot of this stuff gets, gets clouded in rhetoric and, and unfortunately often hateful rhetoric that ends up affecting you know, people of Chinese ethnicity totally. um, who live here in the United States and other places, and we'll get into that in a minute. But I think sure. absolutely, the, the, the really the debate should be about human rights, right? Because um, there are real, real concerns about how China is treating uh, members of its own country, uh, you know, residents in its own country, citizens of its own country, whether it be through this sort of authoritarian police state, police state, excuse me, that you mentioned, or what's happening with the Uyghurs, or what's happened in Tibet. And those are the issues that should be animating us, um, as opposed to whether or not we're number one or we're number two when it comes to GDP or consumer spending power. Exactly. I, you know, I, it's like imagine uh, the Soviet Union with the internet and you know concentration camps. I mean, it's it's a it, and with a bigger economy than anyone else in the world, and you know, with an interconnectedness, and that interconnectedness is unavoidable and. I think of the pandemic made that clear. Uh, the question is whether or not, it's not whether to engage with China, right? That's also sort of one of these false tropes. Of course we have to engage with China. Of course we have to, uh, um, um, you know, recognize the essential interconnectedness of our societies. And we can't become the thing we're fighting. We can't become inhospitable to Chinese citizens and Chinese Americans, the way that China, frankly, has become inhospitable to Americans. And we our Chinese and Chinese American citizens in uh, our country are huge resource for us in this challenge. And, and, you know, and Chinese people are not responsible for the actions of their government. They don't have a choice. They don't get to choose. And they're definitely not responsible for the atrocities of their government. So all of these distinctions are crucially important and, uh, you know, cut much deeper than the issue of like, who's on top, who's on first. Right. And that's another great quote unquote lesson from the cold war. If we want to apply lessons, because, the U.S. record on civil rights was a weapon used against the United States in the Cold War. And there's been some great scholarship on this by Mary Jo Jack and others. Right. And, and, so, yeah. and so that is, again, going to be the case here in the 21st century, is that our record on race and the way we treat African-Americans and Asian-Americans is going to become a weapon in the information and misinformation wars. And it already is. If you look at you know, uh, Russian newspapers, if you look at Chinese media, I mean, th those things become fuel. So we have to model better behavior if we want to claim a sort of moral superiority on the world stage. Yes, and we also have to forcefully reject this false equivalence nonsense, you know? And, you know, there, it's, uh, our, 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 of course we have to reform our democracies and reform our systems and prove that our model works for everybody. And if we can't do that, then well, we're, we're gonna lose uh, in the marketplace of ideas. Um, but we shouldn't for one minute, you know, acquiesce to the, the, the lie that, you know, America is a less just society than, uh, than the one that the CCP is running. And our, our social justice problems run deep and, and we have responsibility to correct them. But it's not as bad as 2 million Uyghurs and 
forced depopulation and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Now, I, I'm cognizant of time. We've already been at it for 45 minutes. I, I, this is a huge topic that we're not going to cover everything tonight. But let me ask you just a couple more questions before we bring Roger up and then bring some more people up. Maybe we'll go till 11 and then get people from the audience involved uh, in the conversation for the last half hour. But I'm glad you mentioned, you know, Asian Americans. Um, you know, there's obviously been an incredible amount of hateful rhetoric and, and hateful attacks against Asian Americans in the United States not just in the past four years. I and mean, this has gone on for, you know, there's a whole history on that we could get into. Um, but obviously it's been more in the media of late. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting in your book is that there really aren't any Asian American characters in the book, you know, if, if we are gonna say quote unquote characters in this story, right? It's such a, it's such a white male um, political class that is sort of featured both in the book and as well as in these China policy discussions. And the reasons for that are obvious. It's because, you know, Asian Americans are shut out from being part of these conversations a lot of times because of security clearance issues or because of scrutiny by the U.S. government, questions of dual allegiance, whatever. There's, that's a whole nother discussion, too. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the demographics of who's having this debate inside Washington, who's yeah. in that debate, who's being left out, and you know why yeah. we aren't utilizing Chinese Americans and Asian Americans as part yeah. of our strategy. Well, okay, a couple things. So you know, first of all, you know, one hundred percent, in the way that the Trump administration abused, uh, you know racially tinged language, racist language, uh, in, especially in connection to the coronavirus, using terms that were uh, racist against Asian Americans, it's totally unacceptable and, you know, uh, caused real harm to real people. And, you know, it became some sort of like bullshit free speech issue on the right, but that's total nonsense. And, you know, to, to just look at the statistics of the way Asians and Americans have been uh, facing increasing hate and violence and then to think about defending the use of terms that might even have a chance of fueling that hate and violence is uh, despicable in my view and, you know, full stop. And then we should, we shouldn't use those terms, even if they refer to the place that the virus originated. You know, as for the book, it's true that the coverage of the Trump administration includes a lot of white men, because if you look to the Trump administration, it's all white men. Okay. There's a few white women. Okay. Um, but I made a determined effort to collect actually dozens of uh, voices uh, from the Asian American community. It, if you look through it, you'll find uh, a whole chapter on the Uyghurs and their struggle for dignity and, uh, and human rights. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with the Uyghurs. I spent a lot of time interviewing them. I put uh, there's some stories in the books. I, I, there's a specific story of Bira Shao, who's actually a Hui Muslim, who was spent five months in a internment camp and then spent 18 months on lockdown and she lost her academic career and her credit and her life for no reason at all. Uh, I traveled to Dharamsala and spent a lot of time with the Tibetan community uh, to learn about their 40 years of struggle against the CCP and the lessons that it held. Uh, I, I, put a lot of, I spent a lot of time talking to Hong Kongers, especially the students, the brave students, the young students who at 18 years old basically gave up their futures to fight for their uh, country, what they consider their country, the city of Hong Kong, uh, that increasingly no longer exists. And then I did spend a lot of time dealing with the Chinese dissidents in the U.S., including some of the uh, uh, Christian Chinese dissidents, like Bob Fu of China Aid, some of the Tiananmen Square massacre, 
uh, uh, student leaders who were still around. And then a lot of the people in Washington who work for different organizations like VOA and are a part of the community. And it's a complicated Chinese dissident community. And some of them are very pro-Trump and some of them are very anti-Trump and some of them think the others are CCP spies and some of them think the others are CCP spies. And, you know, they're all very interesting people. And, you know, most of them are very uh, passionate about what they feel about U.S.-China relations. And then I, there's a, a, a more than a couple sections about Kuo Wenguai and he's a purported Chinese dissident who also has a relationship with Steve Bannon. So I kind of take issue with the the assertion that the book is full of a bunch of white guys. Like, you know, I dozens and dozens of, uh, of voices from the region. Now, it is a shortcoming of the book that I don't have a lot of uh, people quoted from inside mainland China, uh, but, you know, I can't go inside mainland China and the people there, if they speak to me, they're probably get disappeared real quick. So uh, yeah, no, I don't mean to put you on defensive about the book. The point I'm trying to make, which I which I think we can get to maybe in the Q&A or maybe even a different history club, is that, you know, the, the it is a truism about Washington that most of the people in positions of power who decide on Chinese policy are not ethnically Chinese or even Asian. And there's a reason for that. And it's because a lot of Asian Americans are kept out of those positions because of you know, targeted harassment or um, you know, questions about allegiances to various governments. And that, you know, that might be a whole separate discussion, but I think it's, it is relevant to this point, right? About you know, how do we think about this relationship? And, and you made this point earlier, which I thought was a good one, which is that the Asian American community is actually a huge asset for us when thinking about this relationship. And you know, hopefully when we write future books about this subject, we'll be able to feature you know, ambassadors yeah. and, and people who are in senior positions at the Department of State who are ath actually ethnically Chinese, but are living here in the United States, are American citizens and are helping us sort of bridge the divide between these two countries. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, the, 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 the phrase they always use about the state, State Department is uh, Yale, pale, and male, or something. Maybe I got the, you know, male, pale, and yellow, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, well, we, there are, you know, very uh, historical and, and foundational reasons that uh, we have a, a lack of representation across the board. Women, too, by the way, in national security and foreign policy, grossly underrepresented, grossly underrepresented uh, at, at all levels. And I think we have a responsibility, frankly. Uh, uh, all of us to make to to do more to uh, re repair those imbalances. Yeah, and speaking of which, you know, I, I am cognizant of the fact that again we have two white males on stage speaking about U.S.-China relations, uh, and so I did want to bring Roger into the conversation. For that's those not who, his real picture. <laughs> for those who don't know Roger, you know, he has been a, a, an incredible um, member of the clubhouse community. He and I actually came to clubhouse. I think we all came to clubhouse around the same time. Uh, in August, but Roger also has a club here, uh, which I won't uh, pronounce because I'm probably going to butcher it and I don't want to butcher it. Uh, but Roger, maybe you can briefly introduce yourself and the club and sort of where you sit in all this. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Jason. <clears throat> I've been a fan of History Club very early. Then on this platform used to be just us and 10 people in every one of our rooms. And now look at, uh, look at how the time's flying. Can you believe that? It's, we've come a long way, my friend. <laughs> really appreciate all the conversations you have. Um, so yeah, hey, my name is Roger. Uh, I run this, co-run this club, co-found this club called Kinsha. Um, and it's focused on, we're focused on nuanced conversations in the uh, China sphere and the Sinosphere. And just to give you all a sample earlier today, we had a conversation with, uh, so speaking of history, we had a conversation where it involved firsthand oral history of Tiananmen Square from 
a lot of the Tiananmen Square leaders that Josh might have mentioned. Um, and so if you're, if you're a fan of that, um, you know, we tend to host people who are active in the, in the space. Um, and that kind of ranges around the spectrum from Taiwan filmmakers um, to black perspectives on working and living in PRC to we are hosting an event with Sunny Chung um, and Glacier Kuang. And so these are actually student leaders and activists who are active in both the umbrella movement of 2014 and the recent 2019 Hong Kong protests. Um, and so it's very it's a very broad conversation and I hope that y'all can uh, enjoy us someday. But uh, otherwise, I'm also just a, a history buff and I always love talking about history and kind of making it up to Josh because we actually hosted him, but I wasn't able to make it because I had some um, some personal issues that time, uh, but glad to uh, be able to join you both now. Yeah, no, I appreciate you being here, Roger, and, I, and I, I always appreciate the conversations that you host. And I think, you know, one thing that might be important for us to sort of think about is to, is to think about this more in three dimensions, right? So China has objectives and foreign policies that it's trying to execute. It's not just the United States, right? And, you know, and during the Cold War, you know, China had objectives that it was trying to achieve. Uh, it had objectives vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. It had objectives vis-a-vis the United States. And actually in the 1970s, right, it wasn't just that we went to China and opened up China to the world. China played an active role in its own ingratiation to the Western world and to capitalism. And it was part of a grander strategy um, in terms of, you know, uh, becoming a major player on the world stage and becoming a major economic player on the world stage. And that 50 year strategy has paid off. Um, so I, I say all that, Roger, so to say that maybe you can give us a little bit of the thinking from the Chinese side of this relationship. So it's not so US centric and we're not solely focused on, you know, what's happening at the State Department in Washington. From where you sit, from what you read, I know you're an avid reader, you, you know, you follow this stuff. You know, what is the, how do we put ourselves inside the mind of the Chinese foreign policy establishment and what they're trying to achieve? Gosh, it's a very complex, multifaceted question. I, I have to first say that where I sit is uh, I'm a member of what they call the Hua Chao, or, or of course the Chinese overseas, um, not even a Chinese American in this case, but a Chinese Canadian. Uh, how fickle. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> but, perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, especially Americans. No, I'm kidding. Um, but <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, like having having had to do um, some studies in this matter, I think I think one important thing that I always bring up when when we're trying to look at the different perspectives is, um, and I'm just going to say this is kind of like a generalism and probably a, a, an overbroad generalism, but we we tend to not look at the historical perspectives of the others. In in the American example, for example, there are a lot of uh, historical incidents and historical frameworks that are used quite liberally and are kind of like expressions of that. And, and one thing I would just point out is that I think Chinese scholars are actually much more aware of those kind of dynamics, the Civil War, um, you know, Hamilton and patents and things like that. They oftentimes, I think some of them, now, mind you, there are some, there are some watchers from the China side that I think are atrocious, but there are some that are able to quote, I think, American history back in Americans at a much better clip. And, and this is also somewhat true of the, of the, I would almost argue the law of Aishin, the average Chinese person who, um, as with many people in the world, have a fascination with the United States. You know, in Mandarin, we call it Meiguo, or beautiful country. Um, and many of us 
uh, our diaspora members who moved here uh, eventually, whether the United States or adjacent allies. And I think that vision still holds true, and it connotes a very deep appreciation for the history of the United States. Um, I think it's important to bring up because when, when you then look at you know, PRC and the foreign policy lens, or now we're talking about kind of like maybe the, the normalization of relationships, you know, there are things that are happening on that side that I don't think are immediately as apparent to, uh, let's just say, Americans or Westerners, because the, the amount of study of um, the other party may not be as deep or, or its historical wounds or its historical examples may not be as resonant. Um, and so I think two important things to point out there, right? Like one is the Sino-Soviet split, a uh, much, much bigger deal. I mean, Mao was basically furious uh, at de-Stalinization and uh, was basically cornered at that point. I mean, they had very few allies um, in the communist sphere. Mao was still trying to lead it at that point, um, but was not really seeing his efforts go anywhere. And there was starting to be phrase like border skirmishes and things like that. Um, you know, people of my parents' generation would probably remember fondly, or probably unfondly. You know, one of the, one of the funniest things is that there, there are two Vietnam Wars, and obviously Americans know their Vietnam War really well. But the fact that China fought extended border skirmishes with Vietnam, and that in of itself was considered a war, is not something that I think most Americans or Westerners know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that's I think there's a really important point there. Right. And I think this maybe Josh can weigh in on this, too. But I want to hear from both of you on this. You know, we. Most of us in the United States, Canada, you know, we don't speak Mandarin. We don't speak Cantonese. We don't speak any of the Chinese dialects. And so we have I feel like we get such a filtered and limited understanding of Chinese politics, Chinese history, Chinese culture and civilization, even Chinese news, right? And I think for all of us in this room, you know, we are far less informed about China, both the present and the past, than China is about us. Do you agree with that, Roger? Do you agree with that, Josh? Uh, I, I generally agree with that. I think that there are instances of, of specific individuals who are very well studied and who are able to get transparent and candid histories of both the PRC and the US. I think that is a very strong advantage. But uh, but in general, what I've seen is, yes, that um, there are pockets of the Chinese political elite and intellectual elite, as well as the average people who are much more well studied on, on uh, American examples than they are uh, than the, the reverse. Yeah, I, I mean, I think to a large extent that's always been the case, but it's really important to understand, at least from my reporting, that how that very dynamic has changed over the last seven and a half years since Xi Jinping became the president general secretary of the party. And, you know, I, I, I first went to China in 2000 as a college student. And the last time that I was allowed to go into China was in 2016, actually, right before Trump was elected. And, you know, in that amount of time, things were already changing. But what I hear from all of my expert friends, officials, you know, I was having uh, dinner last night with a, an intelligence official who had spent a lot of time in and out of China, um, is that it's totally changed now. OK, and there's a reason that we don't know a lot about what's going on in China. It's because uh, the situation there has become very much more very dire and the room for dissent and the open discussion has closed. And even inside the party, even inside the highest ranks of the party, uh, 
the space for debate has closed. And, you know, social sciences and Chinese universities have been reduced to largely parroting whatever it is people assume to think is the Xi Jinping line at the, at the time. And there's just a, uh, you know, so in other words, we have to attribute some uh, some of that, at least in the last seven and a half years, to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has has denied really the West a lot of this information and made it much harder uh, for what's really going on in China to be known. And I'm not even getting into the fact that they kicked out all the journalists and et cetera, et cetera. You know, so, you know, Yes, we always have had this gap in understanding the Chinese perspective. Now, when that came up in my reporting, it was really fascinating, actually, because, you know, the first thing that the Chinese state counselor, Yang Jishu, did when he visited Jared Kushner and Mike Flynn and Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro and Jared Kushner's grandparents, you know, uh, skyscraper during the transition, the very first interaction between the Chinese leadership and the incoming Trump administration was he sat down with a binder and he went through a litany of hundreds of years of Chinese grievances against the West, 200 years of humiliation, the opium wars, the nine dash line, you name it. All right. So the very, the first message that the Chinese leadership had for the Trump administration was, Hey, we we're going to teach you our history and you're going to understand why we're so pissed at you. All right. Now what's fascinating about that is that the reaction from the Trump side was, I'm paraphrasing here. Fuck you. Okay. And, uh, you know, Bannon told them, forget it. You know, we're not going to do what you want. And behind the scenes, what Bannon and Flynn were planning, and this is in the book, was a reverse Nixon. That's what they called it. That's what Bannon calls it, a reverse Nixon, where they were going to triangulate with Russia against China based on our shared interest with the Russians of combating the 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 shared threat of a rising CCP. And that was why the, a lot of the reason why people like Bannon and Flynn were so interested in repairing relations with Russia. And, you know, it's it's kind of a crazy idea, but it's not kind of a crazy idea. But it didn't work, of course, because Flynn started doing it before the trans, before he was actually not a security advisor. Then he lied about it and got fired. Bannon got fired like seven months later. You know, the president, had, Trump, had no room to have a detente with Russia because he was under investigation for being too cozy with the Russians. And it was totally counter to the mood in Washington. So that never actually went anywhere, but suffice to say that, you know, history did play into the Trump China relationship and the Chinese tried to inject it at every moment, but our system and our government was so messed up that it just, it was like impossible to teach these guys anything. And, and they, they didn't even know what was going on every, each and every day, much less what happened a hundred years ago. Good. Well, that's a great segue for me to reset the room here real quick because we are in the history club and uh, you both have eloquently um, stated the importance of history to understanding these types of issues and these types of questions. And I think hopefully that's been on display here in this conversation. So if you are just joining us or you popped in a few minutes ago, we are the history club. Uh, if you're interested in these types of topics, these types of questions, please do follow the club or follow me. You can click on the little house icon above uh, the title of this room. Uh, we are sponsored this month by LetterJoy, so I do need to make a quick plug to them. Uh, real quick, Josh and Roger, you know, to the things that you just mentioned, one of the things that's really interesting for me is that, you know, I know people who work in this realm, and there is actually so much information about China and what's happening in China, some of it put out by the Chinese themselves, obviously, and some of them put out by other sources. It's all in Mandarin, Cantonese, and other languages that I don't speak. 
And it's just so enlightening for me to have that perspective because I realized that there really is so much more information out there that Americans could be learning about China to get a deeper understanding of this relationship and the dynamics at play. But so many of us just don't speak the languages, right? And I'm sure we could say that for other countries as well. Like we don't speak Portuguese, we don't speak Italian. Americans are notorious for only speaking one language, maybe two at best. But I think we, we do have to sort of look at language and the role that language plays in this relationship in terms of thinking about the reporting that happens, the information that we get as Americans and how we sort of understand and contextualize these questions if we're seeing such a small piece of the information puzzle. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, when I was doing this book, Chaos Under Heaven, I, what I did was I hired two researchers who were fluent Mandarin speakers. Uh, Alex Josk, who's a brilliant young uh, scholar who works for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and has done really some of the most uh, groundbreaking work uh, on the United Front, which is the Chinese Communist Party's massive, comprehensive worldwide influence operations architecture. And uh, Hannah Mahan Davis, uh, uh, who's a, a scholar from Yale. And, um, you know, I just told them I, without much direction, I'm like, go scour the, the, the Chinese documents and, and, and you know, fi figure out what can help us understand what's going on in the relationship right now. And basically, you know, what's, what became fasc fascinating and obvious was that, you know, the Chinese, Xi Jinping especially, but the Chinese Communist Party puts a ton of information on the Internet. And uh, if you just know how to get it and where to look, you can trace a lot of the influence operations. You can trace a lot of the money. You can trace a lot of the messages. You can trace a lot of the ideology. So, you know, that kind of research, which obviously is a non-native Chinese speaker I can't do, uh, is absolutely crucial for understanding what they're doing. And what's amazing really is that if you just read, like, you forget about the, the stuff they put on the Internet that, they don't think anyone's going to find, which is sort of like a lot of data about a lot of the atrocities that they're perpetrating. But, the you know, just the speeches, if you just read every word that Xi Jinping has said uh, when he went to Xinjiang in 2014, when he declared that he was not going to that he was going to increase uh, the clampdown on Tibet, when he talked about Hong Kong, you know, you you would understand a lot more about what we're dealing with and you would be a lot more freaked out. Uh, than you were <laughs> previously, because I, when I read it, I was like, oh, wow, okay, now I now I sort of understand where they're coming from. And it, it's been amazingly upfront about it. Now, the, there's a flip side to that, is that, the, the, you know, over the last four years, but over the last 20 years, the CCP has been buying up a lot of the Chinese language media inside the United States and around the world. So you have millions and millions of Chinese and Chinese Americans, Chinese Canadians, and I'm going to let Roger talk about this more because you can talk about better than me. Uh, who are who have their Chinese language information environment increasingly shaped by the CCP, and uh, and that's necessarily shaped in a propagandist and often corrupt and uh, uh, and 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 malicious way. And I think that is also having a crazy effect on our understanding of China because there's a lot less room for Chinese voices in the media who are not CCP controlled just because they've been throwing so much fucking money at the problem. But uh, I'm kind of curious what Roger has to say about that. Uh, yeah, for Roger, why don't you go for it, Roger? And then a couple of hands are coming up. The hand raising queue is open. And so we'll start bringing people up uh, for short questions to both Josh and Roger. First of all, can, can you all hear me clearly now? Jo uh, Jason, I know you raised the... Uh... Yeah, we got you. Yeah, you sound great. 
Okay, great, fantastic. Um, so first on the on the just general point of primary source documentation, when one doesn't read Mandarin, um, obviously a very big issue uh, because oftentimes what you get is you get excerpts of the of the relevant documents for those people who can read Mandarin. Um, I think that one way to go about doing this um, is if you're genuinely curious to start approaching people who are really good at curating the primary source and understanding where the motivations come from. Uh, I just have three quick ones. I think one is Bill Bishop's Sinuses newsletter. Um, second is Chin AI newsletter on uh, Substack as well, which is more technology focused. Um, and the third is China Digital Times. Now, these are three very, very different um, uh, sources that take Mandarin original documentation, translate them into English with three very different motivations. But once you start to kind of like suss out what those motivations are um, and who you kind of trust uh, for changing those primary documents into secondary ones, um, that can go a long way towards shaping your understanding, at least on baseline. Um, otherwise, you know, I also co-admin the Mandarin Learners Club, so uh, <laughs> well, I welcome we everyone. To Excellent. See, <laughs> all right. If you're interested, sign up for that on Clubhouse. Follow Roger. Get involved with his clubs. Okay. Listen, we have 12 hands raised. I want to get everybody as okay. much as I can. Um, so let me invite uh, Jeremy up and let me invite Ariani up and we'll start with them. And then I see everybody else. We will get to as many people as possible. So please be patient. And Ariani, great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, so I have a, a question for your speaker, Josh Rogen. So I want to revisit uh, Jason's question about why Chinese Americans are not involved in national security. Uh, given that you later both also spoke to language skills and cultural competencies being bridge building um, uh, skills uh, to improve relations or to, to resolve re uh, the tensions between US and China. And so to clarify, um, what the author said he did was reach out to foreign nationals in China, not Chinese Americans. So Chinese Americans are born in the US or naturalized in the US and they can have up to six generations of history in the US. So I just wanna make that distinction. So my question is, um, because the author works in the national security space, how often does he encounter Chinese Americans in the profession? Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, just to be clear, I, I, I don't think I said I reached out to foreign nationals in China. Uh, uh, what we were talking about was the fact that the Washington foreign policy establishment is largely white and male, which is, uh, uh, you know, for a lot of uh, unfortunate historical institutional reasons, the, the sad truth. And what I was saying is that I reached out to, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of uh, Chinese nationals and Chinese Americans and Uyghur Americans and Uyghur and uh, Tibetans and Hong Kongers and Taiwanese and Taiwanese Americans. And I also traveled around the region. I mean, over the four years, I uh, traveled to Asia at least four or five times each year and, you know, went to a bunch of different countries. So I, I, I did, you know, as much as I could to, to, to try to compensate for that uh, imbalance that I saw. But in the, in the story of the Trump administration, it's a lot of white guys, okay? And, and, and in the story of U.S.-China relations, uh, we, you have to work harder to get those voices. And I tried, honestly and genuinely, to, 
get as many of those voices into the book. And I hope you buy the book, Chaos Under Heaven, and read the stories of some of these Uyghurs and Tibetans and Hong Kongers that I put in there, because they're gripping stories. It's some of the most gripping stuff in the book, frankly, because it's real people talking about real tragedy that they suffered at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party's horrendousness. I mean, really awful crimes against humanity that people suffered and Americans too. And yes, we are Americans and Chinese Americans, but they're Americans. And I do think, you know, in a discussion of American policy, we should talk about the fact that the Chinese government is oppressing American citizens. If you think about it, in, in the Uyghur service of the Voice of America, there are 26 Uyghur or Uyghur Americans working there. Every single one of them has ha has family members in the camps, right? That's over 230 family members of journalists who work for the U.S. government. Not one of them is white, okay? They're all ethnically Muslim, you know, minority, come from minority backgrounds, from families inside China. All their families were scooped up and disappeared, all of them. Okay. And I spent a lot of time talking with them and putting their stories in my book. Now, when you're talking about the U.S. government, it's kind of a mixed bag, to be honest with you, because there are plenty of Asian Americans and Asians in the U.S. government and in the military. They're not, you know, properly represented, but they're not unrepresented completely. And, you know, when you look at some of the positions, you know, again, tends to be more in Democratic administrations. You see a lot more appointment of ethnically, uh, uh, um, um, uh, uh, originated people in positions related to those regions. But that's not to say like a white guy can't be the ambassador to India. It's just to say that, you know, we shouldn't, uh, we, we, there are historic imbalances that we need to work to correct. And I'm a hundred percent for that. So, you know, I don't, I, I, I hope that's the impression that you get from my book. I hope when you buy it, you read it, you'll see that, uh, you know, I really made it a, a, a genuine, honest and, and strenuous effort to include as many of those voices as I could. But, you know, again, when you're talking about if you're covering the Trump administration, you're talking to a bunch of white guys. You know, that's, that's just the reality. Yeah. And I, I think this I think this is a good discussion for a future history club. And I don't want to litigate it right at the moment. I appreciate Ariani the question, but I think it is it is something that's worth, you know, further digging into. Right. Because we have talked about language competencies and cultural knowledge and and that exists within the United States. We just have to, as a country, choose to to leverage it and 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 tap into it, and uh, I'm sure that's true in Canada uh, as well. So I think that's an important point that I, I hope people will come away with the, uh, from this conversation tonight. Um, I do do want to keep things moving because there's 19 people with their hands up, and I want to get to as many of those questions as possible. But uh, Taiwan, thanks for being here. Appreciate it, and would love to get your thoughts. Uh, thank you very much, Jason, for inviting me on the stage. Uh, I'm from South Korea. I'm a South Korean citizen. And, um, well, I keep my question really short. Um, uh, do, uh, this is a question for Josh and also for Roger. And uh, do you think that um, sources, for example, let's say uh, Japanese sources or um, um, uh, Korean sources or Russian sources maybe uh, would be valuable for uh, the analysis of China like more in depth. I mean, because uh, Japan has had a history of analyzing um, China for a very long time already, uh, back since the 19th century. And so was Russia. I mean, uh, the Russians were one of the most effective Western powers uh, during the 19th century when dealing with China. So perhaps uh, these two countries have a very large uh, database or resource uh, when, when, com when it comes to analyzing China. So I was curious if, 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 
if in Washington, in the policy circles, they, if they had uh, enough like resources in Japanese or Russian or perhaps in Korean to analyze the Chinese in another dimensional perspective. Thank you. Thanks, Taiwan. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say something that I think uh, our, our latest uh, guest on the stage here, former Trump administration official Kelly Curry, who I know and like very much might not agree with, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that, you know, in the Trump administration, the relationships between the United States and its Asian allies were mismanaged and actually handled quite poorly. And, you know, especially with Japan and Korea. And I, I, I traveled with Vice President Pence to Korea, Japan, uh, Singapore, uh, Papua New Guinea, Australia. Uh, I traveled with uh, Defense Secretary Esper to Bangkok, uh, Vietnam, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, the Philippines, you know, like I, I watched all this stuff very upfront. I had a front row seat to all of it and it was a mess. Okay. And that's a sad reality. So I think there was a, there's a, there was this huge thirst for all, a lot of countries in the region uh, to do what you're exactly calling for Taiwan, which is to like get our heads together on this China thing. Okay. And of course they know the situation better. They're closer. They've been dealing with it for a longer time. It affects them more. All of the things that we're seeing about Chinese interference in our society, they already saw before, right? The reason I hired an Australian researcher was because Australia has been dealing with the issue of Chinese interference. They're 10 years ahead of us, okay? And they already have had all these discussions and passed the laws and done a lot of things. And it wasn't perfect, but at least they, you know, we should figure out what they did, you know, totally. I'm for that. And, uh, you know, all I saw was the, not all I saw, but a lot of what I saw was, an, an abuse of those alliance relationships for a lot of bullshit reasons and really undermined that kind of cooperation that I really hoped would come. And that and and also there were a lot of people inside the government who didn't like that and who tried to do exactly what you're saying, Taiwan, which is to, you know, find those people in these countries that were really tuned into the China challenge and trade notes and figure out what we could do together and what we might do about it and what, what, what worked and what didn't work. So that work was also going on. The title of the book is Chaos Under Heaven because there was chaos, okay? And, you know, one of the hopes, even amongst the Trump people that I talk, still talk to, is that the Biden administration will take some of that initiative and some of that work that was incomplete in the Trump administration, build on it, you know? And they think that there are some things that we established during the Trump era that could be useful in the realm of investment and banking and et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's some merit to that, but the 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 short answer to your question, Taiwan, is that we need to do a lot more of that, and uh, we, we we you know we miss a lot of opportunities uh, over the last four years. Awesome, thanks. I want to keep things moving because we have twenty hands raised, and I really do want to make sure as many people can participate as possible. And I I know that we probably won't get to everybody. I apologize. We will try to get to as many people as possible. And Roger and Josh, we may just have to have you back. I think for Jeremy part got two. back from wherever he was. We yeah. have to have you back. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jeremy, uh, quickly, why don't you uh, give a comment or ask your question? Thanks for being patient and welcome to Clubhouse. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, just a quick question. I know you had mentioned that the his people of China and obviously Chinese officials understand American history maybe much better than your common American person. Um, given these last four years, do you think there is an understanding of how maybe unusual that was in the grand scheme of things? Or is this something like a scarlet letter that the United States will be with uh, 
permanently, if that makes sense. Thank you. I actually don't understand your question. Can you just no. say it a slightly different okay. way? Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, one, one thing, I kind of cut in and out. Um, can everyone hear me now? Yep. Yeah, we hear so, so one thing I'll quickly just add to that, like I, I made that statement. I think one thing that I, I kind of want to add to that, uh, just to fully contextualize, is that unfortunately the Chinese people also have currently, a, 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 and this is not just, it has gotten worse under Xi. Um, obviously his, his prosecution of scholars, including independent legal scholars at Tsinghua University, others, um, you know, I can start naming names, but I don't know if we want to go into that detail, um, has made it much more difficult to access historical uh, documentation and literature, extending all the way to the, honestly, to the Great Famine and the Great Leap Forward in 1959, to the Cultural Revolution. Like these are still sensitive periods, right? Um, and so ever since really the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, it has been very difficult uh, to ascertain an independent Chinese history. And what I mean by that um, is that their Chinese history now is bent towards at least from a state perspective. There are some scholars who used to have more dissentful voices in this. Um, and I think some of them still are kind of maintaining their position. There are liberal factions of certain universities. It has become much harder under Xi's uh, rule, however. But I do want to point out that uh, whereas I think, you know, a lot of Chinese people are just on average more preoccupied maybe with the United States and actually have a, a pretty fine handle on, on, on American politics and history, including BLM, January 6th, and all these movements, uh, partially because it's being propagandized to them by the CCP. Um, I do think that it, it's also really difficult for them, uh, for the average Chinese person, to have access to their own history. Um, because now the, the, the state narrative of history is being constructed to preserve the power of the CCP at all costs uh, and not as to the accuracy or to the truthness or the lessons learned or that could be learned from this history. And this period of sensitivity extends to pretty much every major event after 1949 at this point, um, whether there's those were committed by Mao or later generations of leadership. Um, so yeah, that's just one thing I wanted to add. No, that's perfect, Roger. I, I think that's great. And I think obviously that's a great argument for the importance of having independent scholarship and scholars who are able to pursue the truth uh, and per, try to pursue the facts and not be beholden to the state, which is a, a good reminder of why things like the 1776 Commission were so ridiculous. Um, I appreciate the question, Jeremy. We got to keep the train moving. I want to get as many people uh, into the conversation as possible. So, uh, Kelly, uh, would love to have you weigh in and uh, appreciate your patience. No problem. Thanks. And I wasn't going to say anything because I, you know, I can talk to Josh <laughs> anytime. But um, I did want to mention that our secret weapon for the, you know, yes, there was chaos under heaven for sure. That, that, that your book title is absolutely perfect. And every day was a new adventure going into work. Um, but I, I do have to, I, at the State Department, at least in the last two two years, and to some degree a little bit before that, we kind of had a secret weapon in the form of Mao Chun Yu, who is a Chinese American who immigrated here um, during, he was here for school and, and stayed after Tiananmen, and was, you know, we would have the secretaries, we would have him look at the secretary's speeches that, where they were talking about China, translate them back into Chinese. So we would see how the Chinese Communist Party would read them and then put them back into English. And so we were doing things like that inside the department. 
fairly regularly the last couple of years. Um, again, nothing was systematic. There was definitely, and, and we were always subject to stray voltage coming from above. That was definitely one of the biggest challenges every day. But there was a, a sustained effort to try to move the the Overton window on the policy that I think was successful and that we do, as Josh says, hope will continue going forward. So, and there were several other people, including Elnagar Ipyar, who was in, um, who's a Uyghur American analyst who was working in the National Security Council as well. And so I did want to give a shout out to those folks that were part of the team the past few years who did come from um, from backgrounds that were incredibly important to helping shape policy interventions. You know, I, I just have to say that uh, everything Kelly just said is 100% correct. And, and you know, she's a character in the book. If you read, if you buy the book, Chaos Under Heaven, you will find a story about Kelly Curry uh, going to the UN as a senior UN <laughs> official and f- forcing a lot of UN diplomats to answer the question of why did you care about the mass internment of the Uyghurs, especially the Muslim country diplomats, and you know, forcing them to go on the record to expose their rank hypocrisy and 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 cruelty, and confronting she also was confronting the Chinese diplomats. I mean, she was a a, a one man wrecking ball on on behalf of human rights, and uh, that story is in the book. You should read it. It's in the book. It's hundred percent true. Um, you know, at the same time, you know. You had the president of the United States uh, sitting down with the president of China, uh, telling him that building internment camps for Uyghurs was, quote, exactly the right thing to do. So in a sense, you're kind of saying like, well, Mrs. Lincoln, you know, wasn't the play really good? You know what I mean? Didn't you like the play? We worked really hard on the play. And, you know, so I, I yes, that's what the book is about. It's about all of these people inside the government who are trying to do things on policy towards China and about how that interacted with the politics, which were uh, run by a president who had very little regard, frankly, for the welfare of the Chinese people. Awesome, thank you, Kelly, and thank you, Josh. Leslie, would love to get you into the conversation. Thanks for being so patient. Hi, yeah, thank you so much. Um, I am also really appreciative of the fact that you're being cognizant that it's not a mantle um, and you get diverse perspectives. Um, to the forefront. I have actually heard in other uh, clubhouses they have a gender parity rule. So they'll first get, um, you know, maybe a woman or woman identifying person speak and then a man and the woman say switch off. So that's something to consider for future talks. Definitely. Um, Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I am, uh, you know, I identify as Asian American, also Black American. I currently live abroad in Taiwan. Um, and so I really appreciate this, this conversation on, um, Asian Americans who either live in the US or, or abroad and are kind of these de facto or unofficial cultural ambassadors and serving as a bridge between um, these two different regions or countries, um, especially in a very dynamic, changing geopolitical landscape uh, and, and all these new tensions between the US and China. Um, I have seen you know, my own friends, my family, they speak up against things that are happening in China. It could be um, the situation in Taiwan or the detention of Uyghurs or what's happening in Tibet. And they do get backlash um, from, from their own family, friends, relatives in, in China. They're being labeled as a traitor. So I'm wondering in your research, Josh, did you ever um, come across similar conflicts? And are there lessons from history that, that we can learn from? Because this is a really 
uncomfortable situation to be in when you have ties to these these two different places that you cherish. Oh, Leslie, can I ask you to expand a little bit more on your question? Of course. Um, so just the other day, I was having a conversation with um, uh, a friend who identifies as, as Chinese uh, American. She spent a lot of time in China and, uh, and uh, in Hong Kong uh, reporting as a journalist and unfortunately got kicked out. Um, but she's been really active uh, in just speaking up against um, what's happening with Uyghurs. It's something she covered on the ground um, and and she, she thinks it's it's a violation of human rights. So she's also just in the public eye. So she's getting a lot of vitriol from um, strangers and um, personal contacts alike in, in China. Um, and so I think she's struggling with uh, how to deal with that. And I, I'm sure there's like a history of resistance um, in in the US of, of people of China, Chinese heritage or who identify uh, with China closely, um, just speaking up against things that are happening in their, their motherland. Um, I got um, you. Yeah, yeah. So what, what can we learn from that? What can my friend or someone like me who uh, definitely wants to help, who wants to have a more vocal part of this process uh, do? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the covering the story and writing the book was a real eye-opening experience for me in terms of understanding the dynamics to the limited extent that I could of what's going on inside the Chinese and Chinese American communities inside the United States now, you know, because my reporting was focused on sort of, you know, uh, exposing and raising awareness about Chinese Communist Party atrocities, at least a, a portion of my reporting was focused on that. I ended up spending a lot of time with a lot of uh, people uh, who are connected to China who are working very, very hard uh, to change what's going on inside of China. Now, as a matter of US policy, I argue in the book that that actually should not be our prime priority and that while we have a responsibility as human beings to stand up for human dignity and you know, not just on China, I wrote a column for the Washington Post today about the atrocities in Syria, just for one other example, but there are dozens. I argue in the book that we, the, our first priority has to be actually change China's behavior uh, outside its borders and especially to protect uh, ourselves from China's malign behavior on our own soil. Um, but I also learned that, you know, in, in my research, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually curious to, to get Roger's take on this, of course, but uh, that, you know, the Chinese and Chinese American community is not a monolith and there are pl more people who support their government. And, you know, you could say, you could cast, you could speculate as to why that is, but the fact is that it, that they, that they do, and that splits the community. And uh, it, sometimes it splits families inside the community. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, um, the way that the U.S. government has reacted to the rise of China, which has often been problematic. And, you know, targeting has happened and, uh, you know, uh, profiling has happened and, you know, their abuses have happened and uh, hate and violence against Asians and Asian Americans is increasing. And those are all serious problems. So suffice to say that, you know, I, I stand with and I, and I proudly stand with and proudly advocate on behalf of those uh, Chinese and Chinese Americans and Uyghur Americans and Tibetan Americans who are demanding and screaming and begging for the world to, 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 
do anything possible to pressure the Chinese government to stop committing mass atrocities, which is what they're doing against their own people and a lot of other people right now. You know, we can't have that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the Chinese uh, uh, development and the overall rise of China will largely will be determined by the Chinese people. It's not our job to steer China's development and the Chinese diaspora community. And this is where I'm throwing to Roger. Uh, has its own complicated dynamics that I don't profess to understand, much less, uh, you know, uh, have a, a opinion on. Roger, do you want to weigh in quickly on uh, dissidents yeah, overseas yeah. and how they pressure the government, and then we'll move on to Shaoxing and Katie? Yeah, I'll try to be quick. Uh, is there any distortion? Just because I'm hearing some distortion from my end. You sound great. Okay, great. Um, so really quickly, you know, uh, Chinese like American or Chinese Canadian diaspora, there's like a, a really interesting line to the distinction. We're kind of caught on both sides, right? I remember saying the exact same thing to two people. One, uh, which is that I had written for the Hong Kong Free Press. Um, and one time I was called a Hanjun, a race trader. And the other time I was questioned about my fidelity to the Chinese Communist Party. Like basically there was someone on the American side who would assume that I was, I was a spy, I guess, or something. And and so I had to actually like bust out like, no, this is the, the content of the article. Like, <laughs> I was kind of like making a shibboleth. And so it, it's always an awkward position, especially as the ask member, I, I can't escape my skin color. I can't escape my ethnicity. Um, and so obviously my beliefs are, are can be very different from my ethnicity. And I would point out that this is what the Chinese state tries to enforce. It tries to own an entire corpus of people with many diverse thoughts and perspectives and put them all under one crushing little envelope. Um, and so I think as much as possible, if we can find spaces where that doesn't happen on either side, right? Which is, they're essentially making the same argument. You look like you're Chinese, so you must think this. And I think if we want to nuance that, that'd be great. Um, so quickly to Josh's point, um, yes, Chinese community, Chinese Canadian community, not, not a monolith at all. Uh, I think one really big split that I'm going to go over uh, briefly is people who immigrated out or their parents immigrated out because of the political events of the time, Tiananmen Square, the Hong Kong handover, versus the recent generation of, I think, what I would call Fuardai or Guanardai, who are the powerful children of the wealthy and the powerful in China. They are very much beholden to the Chinese state and they know it. Um, and that uh, enforces their view of the world and how they perceive uh, Western criticism of it, uh, a state that they may ascribe much of their family and their success to. Um, and so I think that's one really, really uh, splitting divide that, that typically splits the community in many different ways. And, and so recent exchange students will tend to be, uh, I'm not trying to generalize overly, but will tend to be in that camp. Well, I think we lost because GDP per capita in, in PRC is currently around ten thousand uh, dollars. Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. Hello. Yep, you're back. Hello. Okay, cool. Um, so, because GDP per capita in, in PRC is about ten thousand dollars, right? Like, in order to afford a four-year degree at like the University of Toronto or Harvard University, you kind of have to be pretty wealthy and/or connected. And so that's kind of where you see some of that division, Josh. That that uh, hopefully that nuances that part. But I, I could go on for hours, and I won't though. Yeah, and, I, and like I said, any one of these could be its own conversation, either in you know Rogers Club. But I think, you know, one quick interjection I'll make again is that, you know, 
there is this conflation of someone who is a Chinese national versus someone who is ethnically Chinese, but is an American citizen and has been in the United States or been in Canada for generations, as Ariani said. And that conflation is part of the challenge. That's where some of the racism comes from. That's where some of the security from or scrutiny from, uh, you know, governments comes from those questions, Roger, that you faced in terms of dual allegiances, right? We have trouble separating out the fact that someone could be an American who's lived in the United States for their entire life and their family's been here for their entire lives and, and is identifies as American through and through, yet happens to have Chinese ethnicity. And yet we might think that person has some sort of loyalty to the CCP, which of course, you know, wouldn't be the case. But that's part of why the establishment in Washington stays monolithic because we have trouble making those distinctions. Uh, Xiao Seng, you've been waiting so patiently. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Um, and thanks, Josh, uh, for sure. Um, your opinion. Actually, I live in Philly as well, so <laughs> nice to meet you. I, I really, first of all, uh, Jason, I really appreciate you recognize the Chinese and Asian community who live in U.S. and consider us um, as a resource and uh, voiced our struggle. I, I really, really appreciate that. And uh, both of your opinions and also Roger's um, very inspiring, very inspiring. I, I agree a lot of what you just mentioned. But by living and studying in the state for about uh, 10 years, I got an opportunity to see both sides of the coin. So I would like to follow up on the language barrier that you just mentioned earlier that could be a, a roadblock for American people who, you know, um, to, to know China and uh, to understand China. So I have a very short um, comments and I will keep that uh, in a minute. Would, would that be okay? One minute max. So I, I personally, I read a lot of CNN, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, but in the meantime, I also read a lot of news uh, from Chinese media like Weibo, uh, Weibo uh, which is a Chinese Twitter or other Chinese uh, you know, news. A lot of articles I found that um, the, the, like a lot of articles from both sides, uh, either it's a Chinese media or American media, they report the fact for sure, but they only focus on one side of the fact that in favor their point of view. Um, and uh, sometimes as a load of the bias. Uh, take one uh, example that uh, uh, Josh, you mentioned that uh, some journalists, uh, American journalists got kicked out from China uh, last year. And a lot of people know that uh, China revoked the press uh, credential of three um, Wall Street Journal reporters. But a lot of people don't know is one of the reason is because on February 3rd, Washington, uh, Wall Street Journal published opinion article regarding the COVID-19 and called China is a sick man of Asia. And that, that phrase was describing a very dark and humiliating time period in China history, which is uh, the late Qing Dynasty, and the title is a little bit uh, offensive and and racist. Um, so, so my my point is, um, a lot of times that people know one part of the fact and then get emotional, get angry, and then forgot to to look other side of the coin. Yeah, no, and, I think uh, the media the media ecosystem is is what you're pointing to, Xiao Sengs. Yes. And get Josh and Roger to respond on that really quickly. Yeah, thank you for uh, making your point. So specifically on the point that you raised. So 
The Sick Man of Asia column was written by Walter Russell Mead, an opinion columnist of the Washington Post. I agree with you that the choice of that title was very unfortunate and played upon some racist tropes and should not have been published, 100%. But I don't agree with you that that justifies kicking all of the Wall Street Journal news reporters out of China, who had no connection to that op-ed whatsoever, no responsibility for it. And I think it's disingenuous to pretend that that's not part of a very long pattern of the Chinese Communist Party seeking to excise any Western journalists who dare to challenge any of their official party lines. I mean, the story of the Bloomberg reporter Mike Forsyth is instructive here. He reported on the personal finances of the Xi Jinping family, which are thoroughly corrupt, by the way. And he, the, well, the, they, the Bloomberg wouldn't even publish it because the Chinese Communist Party threatened the entire business of Bloomberg in China. In other words, billions of dollars worth of economic coercion. And, uh, you know, in the Trump administration, I think it, it was it was a complicated story because what the Trump administration tried to do was to, to try to uh, identify Chinese state propaganda outlets like China Daily and Xinhua in the Global Times to say that they uh, were representative, basically acting as foreign agents of the Chinese government and that they should play by the rules as such. And the that the response by the Chinese government was not to kick out three journalists from Wall Street Journal, but to kick out all the journalists from the New York Times, the Washington Post, where I work, and the Wall Street Journal and other outlets. And we're talking about dozens and dozens of journalists, okay, many of whom had not, did absolutely nothing wrong. And because of the way that the Trump administration handled it, it was easy to portray this as a re- a retaliatory measure and an escalating tit for tat, blah, blah, blah. But that's not really the truth. Okay, Xiaoxing. The truth is that the Chinese Communist Party uh, leans on all foreign media organizations to shut up about its abuses, lest they lose their access and their business and their money and their market. Okay, that's how they operate. That's the pattern. That's the reality. And that doesn't excuse the sick man of Asia column, which, again, I agree was awful and terrible, terrible and problematic. But that's not why the Chinese Communist Party is throwing Western journalists out of China. The reason they're throwing Western journalists out of China en masse is because they don't like the things that the Western journalists keep finding. And those things include Chinese Communist Party's atrocities. And this is a double fuck for our understanding of China because, you know, it actually makes it much harder to deal with the Chinese government if we don't know what's going on in China. And it, it exacerbates all of the misunderstandings that we already have. And the journalists in China were doing crucial, crucial, brave work, by the way. And I know a lot of them. And they were driving up to internment camps and being like, hey, what's in that internment camp? You better show me inside that internment camp. They're taking risks with their lives. And uh, the world needs to know that information. And it's not the same thing as a Xinhua or Global Times reporter who's like covering Capitol Hill. And they have like 80 of them. And like you're like, why do you need 80? You know, it's, not, it's, it's a false equivalence that we've had to deal with all this time. So I just think that we need to just be honest about uh, that false equivalence, to be honest about what the Chinese Communist Party's strategy is. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. And uh, we are rapidly approaching midnight here, so I'm going to try to get as many people in as possible. So um, I appreciate everyone's patience. I see all the hands. If I don't get to you tonight, it's nothing personal. It's just that this topic has elicited so much conversation, which means we just need to have Josh and Roger back for a part two. So Katie, why don't you ask your question or make a comment? And Josh and Roger, I'll also just kind of ask you to keep your responses on the briefer side. That way we can just get to as many people as possible. 
All right, maybe not the best time then for a tripartite question, but here we go. Um, Katie, you're killing me. <laughs> speaking of retaliation, though, this is on on uh, on brand uh, for the last uh, part of the discussion. Um, so I'm Canadian. I'm going to ask about the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou. For people who aren't familiar, America asked Canada to extradite uh, Meng Wanzhou from Vancouver. The legal process over that is ongoing. Shortly after that, two Canadians wound up held and accused of espionage. That process is still ongoing. So my questions are one. What do you think something like this is going to do for America's ability to count on its allies to stick their necks out for America's national security goals? Two, what is the strategic thinking in D.C. right now when D.C. is seeing these situations? And then three, just like your general thoughts on the situation, what you think people are sort of failing to pick up on here? Yeah, good. Great question. So this is in the book, Chaos Under Heaven, available now wherever books are sold. Uh, what happened was that, you know, the national security officials in Trump's team were waging this tech war against Huawei, uh, a huge Chinese tech company that, in addition to just selling a lot of good products, was also doing a lot of shady shit, including busting sanctions on uh, Iran and North Korea, installing backdoors in the African Union's, you know, uh, headquarters. They built them headquarters in Addis Ababa and five years later they found that every night at like 5 a.m they sent all the data back to Beijing because it was all Huawei so it was all compromised totally corrupted uh you know that kind of nonsense and it was going on for years and years and you know in the middle of the trade war the national security folks were like oh let's let's do something about this if we can and they started a tech war against Huawei and you know for the sanctions busting the plan was to arrest the CFO of Huawei Meng uh if she got anywhere near where we could arrest her and the funny thing, I mean, not haha funny, but kind of ironic funny, is that she happened, the, the moment came when she showed up in Vancouver and the Canadian government was like, oh, good, we can arrest her. Do you want us to arrest her? And they called the U.S. Justice Department. And the Justice Department was like, and this is all in the book too, they were like, oh, wait, Trump is meeting with Xi Jinping right now in Buenos Aires at the G20, like literally tonight. And like, that might have something to do with this. We might know it. So they called the national security advisor, John Bolton. And he was like, okay, go ahead and go do it. And then as Bolton says in his book, he declined to tell Trump about it. And Bolton's like, well, I didn't want to bother him. He was having a busy day. And, you know, so he just didn't tell him. So they arrested so the Canadians on the word of John Bolton and the U.S. Justice Department, arrested Meng. They went out on a limb, right? Because they knew Beijing was going to get super pissed off. Mm -hmm. And... Trump finds out about it from Xi, and he's pissed off because no one had told him about it because they were trying to work around him. Long story short, he, he starts saying to everyone who would listen, hey, we just arrested the Ivanka Trump of China. Somebody told him she's like, she's the daughter of the founder of Huawei. He's like, we, and that's about as everything Trump he reduces to some sort of like analogy about his, himself. He's like, oh, the, how could we arrest the Ivanka Trump in China? So they really double fucked the Canadians because uh, you know, Trump didn't care about Huawei and he was willing to trade away May. And behind the scenes, uh, Mnuchin tried to tr make a deal to, to get her back. And meanwhile, the Chinese decided to just the Chinese government decided to lean on Trudeau and they just decided to start screwing with him. And part of that was to take the two mics as hostages. They just found two Canadians and they put them in jail and started torturing them. And then they went to Trudeau and they're like, hey, do you want your two guys back? 
But this just also kind of shows you, and this is another theme in the book, is that, you know, the Chinese government makes a lot of mistakes, too. Like, we think, oh, they're so clever. No, they, they, they were really stupid in this case because Trudeau, who is not, like, known as a tough-on-China guy by any stretch of the imagination, could never make that deal. He could never do a hostage trade because our system is purportedly based on the rule of law, and we were accusing men of breaking that law and prosecuting her, and the two mics were totally innocent. So once you make that trade, you're just endorsing hostage-taking forever and ever. You just be like the Chinese are just be pick up, picking up hostages like the Iranians, and that'll never, ever end. So they actually put Trudeau in a position where he had to actually take a more a tougher position. But then when he was in that tougher position, he went back to Trump, and he's like, hey, you know, buddy, you got me into this mess. Are you going to back me up or what? And Trump left him hanging high and dry. So that's a long way of saying that, like, you know, when when the Trump administration dysfunction met with the sort of the real issues in, in multilateral diplomacy, it always turned out or usually turned out bad. And with the Biden and, and then at the very end, they tried to make a deal to, to trade the two mics and Joshua Wong and for uh, for uh, for Meng and it, it, they didn't, it didn't work out. So if you're asking me where we are now, I think what you're going to see, frankly, and this is some breaking news. You got what? How many people we have in this room right now? Like 783 people. You 783 people are about to hear some breaking news. I've not reported this on the net, on the in the Washington Post yet, just because I haven't gotten to it. I had a, a lot of other things to do this week. But Jason, your history club, you're recording this. You're going to put this on the thing. Press record now. This is breaking news. The the Biden administration is working behind the scenes on a deal. Okay. To trade the two mics for Meng. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be a straight trade. They're going to come up with some sort of scheme where they admit some sort of culpability. Maybe Huawei pays a fine. There's going to be some story attached to this trade to make it not look like what it is, which is just like a, a hostage trade. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm, that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, if if Huawei is made to, uh, you know, pay a price for its the crimes that it committed and there's some sort of restitution or some sort of change of behavior. It depends on the details, frankly. I'm agnostic about the idea of making, you know, people plea out all the time. And if they want to, you know, bail out Trudeau and get this off of our long list of horrible confrontations with, with Beijing and get the two mics home, you know, that's great. It would be really nice if they got Joshua Wong and Agnes Cho home at the same time, Chow home, because those are two innocent people who are fighting for Hong Kong autonomy and democracy who were facing a life in prison, you know, and they're like 20 years old. So I, if I, if I had my druthers, I would say, you know, trade the two mics and Agnes and Joshua Wong for Meng and make Huawei pay some restitution. But that's what's going on behind the scenes. You heard it here first. All right. Well, yeah. we broke news in history club. We've done that a couple of times now in history club, but that was, that was great. Uh, Roger, do you want to weigh in real quick? And then uh, there's a lot of hands left. We're getting close to midnight. So I want to make sure we get as many people in as possible. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up, uh, so I coordinated with Joanna Chu before Toronto Star. She's written a lot of the breaking coverage on this kind of stuff, if you're interested. Just two quick, maybe not obvious points. One is that uh, if they can arrest two random white Canadians, um, I'm like people like the diaspora are not coming back. I'm just saying that right off the bat. Um, and then secondly, uh, I think it had major power implications for the Canadian government. That, that may undo our government if uh, this deal does not go through. So that's kind of my, my stance on that. Thank you. All right, thanks guys. Quasi, great to see you my friend. For those who don't know Quasi, he runs amazing clubs here on Clubhouse. Follow him, follow his clubs, UN75.
other things he's involved in. He is, uh, as we say in Yiddish, a mensch. And uh, appreciate his support of History Club. And uh, Quasi would love to get you to ask a question to our speakers. That's not the Yiddish word I would have chosen, but go ahead. Thanks, Jason, for holding the space for uh, this conversation and for just really doing a great job with History Club um, for such a long time. My question is about uh, technology companies. The U.S.-China competition in Silicon Valley and Beijing is is obviously uh, at a fever pitch. Even this app is an example of that. What would your advice be to companies, U.S. companies or European companies that are being courted by Chinese investors um, with regards to national security, data risk, uh, et cetera? So thank you, Quasi, uh, for the question. For those of you who weren't around a couple of months ago, what Quasi is referring to is the fact that, you know, for a few precious weeks, Clubhouse was totally open in mainland China and thousands of mainland Chinese were interacting with all of us here in magical and uh, special ways. And then, you know, the Chinese government clamped down on that. And we hope and pray that those people are safe wherever they are. Um, and then a uh, discussion erupted on Clubhouse about the fact that we're all having unencrypted conversations on uh, a platform that's based off of Chinese tech on, and the conversations are stored on servers that are owned and operated by a Chinese China-based company. And, you know, is that an issue? I don't know. It depends, I guess, on your perspective, but uh, it's, 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 it's something, isn't it? And, you know, uh, it, <laughs> it, 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 Setting that aside for a moment, you know what the what my book says about this is pretty uh, uh, interesting. Actually, it's about the fact that the tech industry and the national security industry simply weren't having that conversation for all of these years for a lot of really understandable reasons. It's partially a legacy of the Snowden era, and partially uh, 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 an outgrowth of the fact that Silicon Valley is. Uh, just built on a lot of co interdependence with Chinese engineers and Chinese companies and collaboration. And why wouldn't open collaboration be a good thing? It is in science, a good thing. It is in technology sharing a good thing. And, uh, and then once the national security started community and the FBI started knocking on the doors of all these Silicon Valley companies and being like, Hey, do you really know what's going on inside of these, uh, 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 cooperative programs? Do you really know what kinds of technologies you are, uh, getting uh, robbed of and how they're being used in malign ways against not only Chinese people, but our the United States of America, those conversations did not go well, okay? And over the years, they've gotten a little bit better. Uh, but what the, the first team, the first wave of national security officials who started to comb through all of these issues in Silicon Valley found was pretty shocking. 16% of Silicon Valley venture capital deals included, you know, Chinese investment and you know, all of that, uh, 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 and there's just a huge amount of uh, uh, Chinese capital going into scooping up a lot of failed technologies, a lot of failed Silicon Valley companies that whose tech was just sitting there to be taken uh, because they had failed in the capitalist system, but in a in a communist or totalitarian system where the money is no object, they just kept acquiring them, <clears throat> and no one had thought through all these implications. And now that work, I think, is happening, but. It's really hard to parse through, and it's really hard to to separate the, what's really dangerous from what's uh, not. And uh, the advice that you have to, that I think I've heard from every uh, national security-minded uh, official for their Sil Silicon Valley uh, interlocutors is trade carefully, okay? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, what we also saw is that the business 
uh, uh, calculations of doing business in China have changed because the costs and risks of doing business in China, especially in the tech sector, have gone up because the Chinese Communist Party's behavior has grown worse. In other words, you know, if you were doing, uh, you know, some sort of AI project with uh, a Chinese tech firm in 2016, nobody really batted an eye. But in 2021, you have to ask yourself, is that company, uh, you know, building an AI machine to identify Uyghurs so they can be swept off the street and tortured? And if the answer is yes, you have to ask yourself, do you want to be part of that? And when big institutions like Google or MIT started to look at that and they started to realize, oh, my God, we are helping, you know, fuel and, and increase the efficiency of mass atrocities. You know, some of them were like, OK, we got to stop. And some of them were like, everybody better shut up. And in my view, we can't shut up, in my view, uh, when we find out we're helping uh, to the Chinese digital authoritarian state to perpetrate mass atrocities, we have to speak up and we have to stop it. All right. Well, um, I want to reset the room here because we've now been going for two hours. We still have 20 people with their hands up. This has been an amazingly provocative and interesting conversation. Josh and Roger, I want to be sensitive to your time. It's also getting a little late for me. And also we do have a friend recording the room and I want to be sensitive to his time as well. So let me ask you guys this. Are you willing to stick around? And if so, can we do lightning round? So one sentence question, one sentence answer from you both. And we can get Let's do more it. people into the conversation that way. All right. Yeah, so John, sure. you are first up with your one sentence question or statement. Thanks, Jason. Josh, Roger, uh, amazing talk. Um, one sentence question. Given the rising importance of AI in both China and America and Taiwan's uh, position as the top global semiconductor manufacturer, <clears throat> pardon me, what do you see going forward for Taiwan and, and also based on their relationship, not only with PRC and US, but Japan, as far as Taiwan's uh, sovereignty? Uh, I th one sentence answer. I think the, the Trump administration had the right idea by trying to increase the incentives for Taiwan to cooperate more with the United States and focus less on its business inside China. I don't think they executed it perfectly, and I don't think it was backed by the right kinds of investments and the right kinds of messaging. Uh, but in the end, the, this whole idea that like, oh, well, companies in Taiwan uh, are inextricably linked to their business in China, I don't think really bears out. And, you know, it if we believe that in the end, China is going to do what it says it's going to do, which is to pursue indigenous uh, production of all these critical materials. And I think they're going to do that no matter what we do, right? It doesn't matter if we cut them off or we don't cut them it's off. It's a very gonna, long sentence, my friend. Yeah, I'm going to almost finish it. You know, they're going to eventually build their own semiconductor industry. In the 10 years between now and then, when they actually pull it off, we should do everything we can to make sure our industries and the Taiwanese industries are the ones that win that worldwide competition. Roger, yeah. anything you want to add? Kind of haiku. TSMIC, opening facilities in the U.S., human capital, though, will take a 10, 20-year gap, I think. Um, so it shows the critical geopolitical and economic importance of defending diverse Chinese identities. Thanks. Love it. Beautiful. Thank you. All right, Ben, you're up. Well, first of all, thank you to the panel. I really appreciate all of your time, and thank you for having me up here. Um, one sentence question really is um, a one sentence two part. What um, what do you think the long term implications are for the U.S. economy as uh, China recently overtook us as the number one source for FDI? 
uh, foreign direct investment? And also, uh, do you think that there is a way for us to be able to try and close that gap quickly before uh, we kind of lose sight of the of uh, at least being kind of tied? Thank you. I, th I think the American economic dominance and the power uh, and agility that affords us is uh, inevitably going to go away. Uh, I don't know how long that will take or, uh, you know, how drastic that will be. Uh, but there's just no doubt that sooner or later the Chinese economy will be larger than ours. But I don't think that necessarily leads to all of the uh, conclusions that everyone thinks it does. In other words, you know, uh, you know, we, we have uh, an interest in defining our economic competition is not between America and China, it's between our system and the Chinese system. And if you realize that, you know, America, what, 25% of the world economy, but America and its allies are 60% of the world economy. Well, 60% beats 40%, but 25% doesn't. Roger, any thoughts? Uh, Chinese American economy is very well integrated. Um, some disentanglement. Note, China's GDP is currently 70% of US, which is similar to Japan's position at its peak. A lot of bad comparisons being made there, but the point has to be stressed that the future is very uncertain. Cheers. Love it. Roger, you're great at this. Love it. All right, David, appreciate your patience. Thank you for the chance to speak, uh, Jason. I just have one um, simple um, perspective question for you guys, because I hear a lot about China rise. Do you see China think they are China rising, or do you think they think they are going back to their rightful positions? In particular, I believe, for my understanding as a history buff, that they are thinking they are going back to their pre-colonial time. Right. No, so uh, it's a really, That's, really different perspective. Yeah, exactly. But if we've been misjudging about this kind of uh, situations, uh, it could be a totally wrong policy altogether, whether it's Trump or Biden. Yep. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. I totally agree. Josh, uh, Roger, any thoughts on that? The, the sort of long history of, of China and how that plays into this? You know, Xi Jinping, again, that talks a lot about the China dream. He talks a lot about uh, uh, um, restoring China to the top of the global order, world order. I think he's pretty, you know, honest and clear about that. And, and I, I also think it's a, a really bad idea. Right. Yeah, China's own history is, is very, you know, very complex. I think there's going to be some kind of a, a premium or distinction between a hand-led uh, restoration versus uh, what might be regarded as Manchu or Mongolian-led. Um, but overall, I'll wrap up just by saying that um, I, I certainly think PRC thinks of itself as restoring itself to its uh, locus as the center of world GDP as it was in the 1600s and 1400s. Cheers. Great question. Thank you, David, for bringing that perspective. I think that is spot on. And I think we should do a whole other room on that because I think that would be a great conversation. Isaac, thanks for being patient. Hey, um, yeah, thanks for uh, having me on stage. Um, I think uh, in the earlier part of the conversation, there was a lot of talk about the you know, rise of attacks on Asian Americans. Um, I myself, uh, I left America last year, coming back to Asia. I mean, before all these attacks occurred, but I kind of had a premonition that would be happening. Uh, I'm just wondering, how do you think this would affect, uh, I guess, both Chinese or Asian Americans' views about you know, China-U.S. trade conflict or, or you know, general conflict, and also Asians in Asia, and how um, they see uh, these kind of uh, events? Roger, you want to take that one? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, look, I, uh, I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not 
uh, afraid. I, I have seen some uh, racist incidents per myself firsthand. Uh, that said, I think that in the long run, um, you know, we're, when you're talking about the, the incidents we're talking about, we're talking about individuals uh, versus other contexts where I, I would, my views or my opinions would be fighting a state. Um, and so you kind of have to pick your battles in life. All right, thanks. Kylie, thank you for being patient. Would love to hear your one sentence or one, uh, one, yeah, one sentence, one thought, yeah. one question. Okay, yeah. Thank you, Jason, Josh, and uh, Roger. Very happy to be in the same room with Josh again. Um, I just want to let everyone know that tomorrow Biden is going to lead the, the Quad meeting with uh, the summit with uh, Australia's uh, Prime Minister and also the Prime Ministers from Japan and uh, um, uh, and India. And I think that marks uh, a good milestone for restoring U.S. Uh, alliance uh, with uh, um, other parts of the uh, other parts of the world to go against uh, with China and uh, I think that's a, a very good start uh, for Biden um, after um, restoring this uh, mess from from uh, from Trump uh, quitting the TPP that which gave the rise of China the opportunity of forming its own alliances that is called the RCEP. I wonder uh, whether Josh uh, or Roger thinks that um, my statement is, uh, is true, that this marks a good milestone for um, America being back to its uh, original trajectory of forming uh, a strong alliance with other parts of the world. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So for people who don't know, the Quad is an informal arrangement of the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. And if you just draw lines between those four countries, it forms a diamond that encircles China. So, you know, this was originally a Japanese idea that was put forth by the uh, Shinzo Abe administration that, you know, the, the Obama administration was lukewarm to and that the Indians at that time were frankly lukewarm to. You know, uh, the Trump administration was all about the Quad to the extent that they could get their act together. And the, the fact that the Biden administration is embracing it shows just how much continuity there is. I remember talking to National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger, who was in charge pretty much of the Trump administration's Asia policy. He, he would always say the same thing. He would say, you know, we have to think of China not as the sun, right, around which all of the other planets in the region uh, rotate. We have to think, think about it as Jupiter, just like one planet in the constellation. And we have to focus more on those frontline states where, you know, that are facing the China challenge first. And that's also happens to be the exact way that the new head of the White House's Asia team, Kirk Campbell, thinks, right? He's an alliance guy. He's a Japan hand, right? He's not a China hand. He's not someone who has a lot of experience dealing with China. So I think all of that is positive, but it doesn't actually solve the China challenge. It helps solve the, the alliance problem. Uh, but when, at some point, we're going to have to deal with actually dealing with the CCP itself. Great. Thank you, Josh. All right, Arkan, thank you for being patient. And just a note, we still have dozens of people with their hands up. We're, we're not going to get to everybody tonight. Uh, we've already been going for two hours and 15 minutes almost. So we'll get to a few more and then we'll probably have to call it an evening and we'll just have to have Josh and Roger back to talk more about these topics because obviously there's a lot of questions and a lot of engagement. So Arkan, we'd love to hear from you. 
Yeah, thank you, Jason. Um, just a quick uh, side note, I'm from Indonesia. So my question is more about uh, what is the uh, perspective or the prospects in, uh, in this administration actually about uh, bringing in Southeast Asia into this conversation? Because all what we've been hearing is more about the Quad or even uh, more about Japan, Korea, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and all the, um, the more advanced economies of East Asia, so to say. And, um, and also since, for example, uh, in the Myanmar issue, uh, the ASEAN, uh, led by actually our foreign minister, Retno Marsudi, is aligning more with China. Like They already made talks with uh, Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, and I haven't seen any, let's say, uh, reaction or strategy from uh, this administration, the Biden administration, going on into Southeast Asia, as, uh, as opposed to Trump, which uh, albeit the trade war is uh, maybe globally is a bad one, but for Southeast Asia is definitely an opportunity uh, which has been, uh, you know, realized to yeah. the diversion of some foreign investment and factories to Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point, the Southeast Asia question. Josh, Roger, any, you know, have any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. There's always been two pivots to Asia. The pivot from the Middle East to Asia and the pivot from Northeast Asia to Southeast Asia. And, you know, neither of those pivots has ever really happened. And they, everyone always talks about both of them. And then, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like that old uh, commercial with the old ladies who pull up to the burger drive through window. You know, they get there and they're like, where's the beef? You know, and the pivot to Asia is like, oh, that's how it is. Every time I hear someone say pivot to Asia, I'm like, oh, what a fluffy bun. You know, but then you look and tell you're like, where's the beef? When did it happen? And so I, I think what you're seeing in the, uh, uh, what you saw in the Obama administration and then you saw in the Trump administration, now you're seeing in the Biden administration, is a lot of happy talk about we got to spend more time on Southeast Asia. But the first crisis that they hit was the Burma crisis, and they didn't want any part of that. <laughs> they said the right things, and they did a couple of things, and then they were like, okay, can we, can we just move on? Because that's a, that's a tricky subject and we don't really know the way out of it and you know uh, i'll give you a little constructive tough love there archon on on your region if i may you know from my uh you know privileged position here in washington is that like the problem with dealing with southeast asia is that southeast asia is 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 so divided amongst itself and you know it's just it's hard to coalesce a bunch of countries that don't want to be coalesced and you know China has been so active in so many of these countries, such as, you know, Cambodia and Burma and et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, the, 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 the bar is so high for doing, making some progress. So it would be nice, you know, yes, the U.S. needs to take steps towards Southeast Asia, but it'd be nice if countries like India, I'm sorry, uh, Indonesia and Malaysia would take a couple of steps of their own. All right, so I think what I'm gonna do is I'm going to bring up three more people from the audience to ask questions, and then I think we'll, we'll have to cut it there because I know we could go on all evening. There's so much to dig into here. Uh, so Josh and Roger, I really appreciate you guys sticking it out and being here for a little bit while longer. So Wei, uh, we'll have you ask your question. Kevin, we'll have you ask your question. I'll bring up three more people from the audience. I'll then turn off the hand raising and I apologize to anyone who won't get to ask their question tonight, it's nothing personal. There's just been so many people who want to get involved and, and we just are not able to go all night. It is after midnight here on the East Coast of the United States. We do have to let Josh and Roger go to sleep and I probably need to get some sleep as well because I need to write my book uh, tomorrow or finish writing my book tomorrow. So, uh, Wei, uh, we'd love to hear you weigh in. 
Yeah, thank you, Jason. Uh, just a quick question for Josh. Uh, do you think uh, after I've been interacting with some uh, people from mainland on CH, on Clubhouse, um, do you think the U.S. government uh, noticed that the main problem lies with um, trying to persuade the people in mainland uh, that, you know, CCP is kind of hijacking them? And uh, I don't... I, I, I'm wondering if the government has any sort of strategic strategic plan about that, or still at this point still mostly just political meandering. Thank you. Yeah, I think I understand your question. I don't really. I I've looked pretty closely. I haven't really seen any efforts to persuade the people inside mainland China of anything from the U.S. government. Our our public diplomacy and public broadcasting systems are like a disaster actually and uh, so i uh, you know but at the same time if you're asking me what i learned of those uh, you know four or five weeks when i was talking to all these mainland chinese people on clubhouse uh it wasn't the u.s government telling them that they were brainwashed they were saying oh my god we had no idea that these things were happening and you know i wrote about this in the washington post actually a lot of mainlanders saying like you know, we just don't think our government is capable of that. You know, we we know we live in a constricted information environment. You know, it's not like mainland Chinese people are unaware of the constraints that they're living in, but they are unaware of the things that they're unaware of. And, you know, in those four weeks, there were thousands of people who were talking to Tiananmen Square student leaders and Ai Weiwei and learning Hong Kong student leaders and Tibetans and Uyghurs and you know, it was respectful. Sometimes it was heated. Sometimes it was very raw, the conversation. But I saw progress being made and I saw and I heard the voices of mainland Chinese people who said very clearly, they're like, listen, we don't dislike our government, but we had no idea they were capable of all this evil stuff. And we believe these people when they're saying that they were subjected to all this evil stuff. So I don't think that's a U.S. government conspiracy. I just think that's uh, uh, an unfortunate result of the great firewall that the CCP has built. And I think you know, actually, we should if we had a smart policy, we wouldn't try to propagandize Chinese mainland people. We would just crash the Great Firewall. I've written this before. We should spend a billion dollars and bring it down. OK, and see what happens. And I think that would be a grand service for the Chinese people and for the world. Roger, do you want to weigh in quickly? Because you were very active in some of those conversations when they were happening here. Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, an extraordinary opportunity for people to connect with one another. And I mean, to a certain extent, some of it's still happening, although obviously people need to use VPNs to access. And that's a very privileged uh, number of people who can have that. I think in terms of the Great Firewall, yeah, that's something that uh, structurally needs to be approached. Um, I think I, I personally know of a few protocols and softwares, but uh, settling on, on some um, might require some work. Uh, but Josh, I do think that the dollar tag that you're presenting is a DC dollar tag and not a not a San Francisco one. So that's my only comment on that. Is it too low or too high? Uh, as is the case with anything DC, um, add a hundred X ratio, and it's still probably too high. <laughs> but okay, like, so I, I appreciate if we if we took our seven hundred forty billion dollar defense bill and we spent six hundred forty billion one year and spent a hundred billion dollars on bringing down the Great Firewall, I think that would be money well spent. Or you could have, I mean, the when they were banning WeChat, and I don't think that was a great idea, but when they were, um, you had a lot of people who were incentivized to solve this problem. But uh, in any case. Yeah, and of course, there would be repercussions if we did that as well. So we have to be prepared for a, a cyber war that maybe we are not equipped well, to. Uh, if you want to make win. an omelet, you got to break some eggs.
<laughs> well, that might break a lot of eggs. Um, but that's a, that's a discussion yeah, can, for another time. Yeah, we can time. hack a phone at Jason's place. Uh, break the great firewall. It's all Jason's fault if uh, we actually do. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Nikhil, thanks for being patient. We'd love to hear your one-sentence question or comment. Got it. Thank you, sir. Um, in reference to the Quad, aka Diamond of Democracies, are there any areas of conjecture or projection in terms of non-publicly disclosed areas of collaboration in terms of maybe countering some of the Chinese strategies? Sorry, could you expand on the question a little bit? Well, I'm looking for uh, if there's any areas of, uh, and, and this like in terms of pure speculation or conjecture uh, uh, around non-publicly disclosed, you know, potential areas of collaboration uh, between the Quad countries. Are there things happening that we don't know about? Well, yeah. I mean, maybe, what, maybe we, we don't know what we don't know, but like, you know, right. uh, is there speculation around certain things? You know, the, the discussions have been taking place at a lower level for many, many years. So there's a ton of things that are being discussed that have never been reported on the press. That doesn't make those things like necessarily secret or, or, or undisclosed. It just means that nobody really was paying attention. And, you know, I think the, the push is for more collaboration in more areas and whether or not that's, you know, tech or commerce or trade or banking or, you know, security or public health, right? Uh, public health, that seems like a good one that we might want to put our heads together on considering we're all stuck in our homes, which is like good for clubhouse rooms, but like bad for our overall society. You know, I'm, I think, you know, yeah, there's a ton of those discussions, but I'm, I'm not worried about the, the, the discussions we don't know about. I'm worried about the lack of the discussions that aren't going on. All right. We're getting near the end here, guys. Thank you guys so much. We will wrap at 1230. I think that's a uh, two and a half hours is a good length of conversation for one evening. So James, why don't you ask us the penultimate question? Okay. Uh, good evening, guys. Thanks for, uh, thanks for staying so late. Uh, quick question. Uh, I live in Hong Kong. Um, what do you what do you think the future holds for U.S. Hong Kong relations and U.S. corporations uh, doing business in Hong Kong now that the government has arrested and locked up 47 politicians for simply for the simple act of running uh, a primary and trying to win an election? You know, when I was covering the Hong Kong uh, uh, reaction to the Hong Kong crackdown, the Hong Kong protests first, and then the crackdown that followed in Washington, right? It was characterized by a president in Trump who very clearly didn't give a shit, and a lot of people inside his government who very much did give a shit, and that resulted in the disjointed policy we saw. And the main question was, should we continue to do business in Hong Kong like nothing, like everything's fine? And, you know, even in Hong Kong, as you know, that's a very uh, divisive question, but I, you know, I asked the people that I saw leading these movements like Joshua Wong and Nathan Law and Martin Lee and Jimmy Lai and some others. And they all said the same thing. They said, no, they said, we can't do business as usual. And just because we haven't succeeded yet doesn't mean that we're going to stop fighting. And, you know, I think there's this like, you know, misperception in the West that like the Hong Kong situation is over. And it's, I mean, I'm, I would, I, I hope you, I think you may agree with me. It's far, far from over. And just because Hong Kong people, have our uh, struggle is not succeeded doesn't mean that they're going to give it up and we need to support them and if supporting them means you know denying the chinese 
uh, government the ability to profit off of Hong Kong while cracking down at the same time, then that's what we got to do. And, you know, it's a little bit fucked up to think, oh, well, I love you so much, I'm going to strangle you or, you know, but at, 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 at the same time, if, you know, if, if the long term goal is to prove to China that they have they can't have their cake, you need it too. they can't, you know, repress Hong Kong and still pretend it's this bastion of rule of law that all these Western companies can throw their money at. Uh, and if that's what the Hong Kong student movement believes and the protest movement believes, then that's what I believe and that's what I'm going to support. Yeah, next Thursday, we're going to be hosting 9 a.m. Sunny Chung, uh, who was uh, one of the Hong Kong student leaders. I think it has been remarkably effective at actually getting the U.S. government to uh, take action. And so I hope uh, any of you who are, who are in here who have corporate connections, I think his words might uh, end up falling in the same way they, they might have when it comes to policy people. Awesome. And actually, Roger, that is a great segue, uh, because before I let Bill ask the last question, I just want to wrap up the room here as we wind down. So this has been History Club Conversation. And if you are interested in more History Club chats, please do click on the History Club above the room title, or you can follow me uh, as well, and you'll get notified about future events. We do these every Thursday night, 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, wide range of topics. Uh, this one has obviously, you know, been really, really thought-provoking, and it's gotten a lot of reaction. We've had a huge room, you know, thousands of people have passed through. Um, so it's great. It's great that people are interested in history and how it, it affects uh, the present and the future. And, and weaving those three things together is really uh, at the core of what we try to do here in History Club. So if that is up your alley, please do follow the club. I also want to acknowledge again that, that this month's conversations have been sponsored or are being sponsored by Letterjoy, letterjoy.co. Check them out, please. I mean, first of all, they're an amazing organization for supporting the club but also they have a really cool service where they send letters to people. Uh, so if you're interested in history, you want to learn more about it, maybe it's a cool gift for someone in your family, please do check out letterjoy.co. Thank them for hosting these types of conversations, making this space possible on Clubhouse, and also might find a, might find a cool gift uh, to give to a loved one. Um, if you are appreciating the room tonight, you are also welcome to contribute to the History Club. You can send uh, via Venmo or via PayPal, uh, if you want to give a contribution to help make these events possible, you can also get into our cryptocurrency. We have a cryptocurrency for the History Club. It's the JSON coin. There's a link in my profile if you want to learn more about it. It's on the Rally Network. So if you appreciate the types, you know, two and a half hours that we go to bring you this type of material and these types of guests, please do consider uh, supporting us and also supporting Josh by supporting Roger and the clubs that he does here on Clubhouse. So. I think those are all the housekeeping announcements I want to make before we wind up. And Bill, you have the honor of taking us home. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll make it quick. Should China take military action on Taiwan, given the intentional ambiguity of the Taiwan Relations Act from 1979, what would be the U.S.'s reaction? Thank you. There's a story in my uh, book, Chaos Under Heaven, available on sale now wherever books are sold, where a GOP senator goes into uh, the Oval Office and he says to President Trump, he says, listen, you've got to support, I'm paraphrasing it lightly, you've got to support Hong Kong because if, you, if we let Hong Kong go, next the Chinese government is going to invade Taiwan. And this senator was 
exaggerating that prospect intentionally to play to Trump's vanity and to play to his ego. And the response that he got back from the president of the United States was chilling. And what Trump said was, quote, Taiwan is like two feet from China. We're 8,000 miles away. If they invade, there isn't a fucking thing we can do about it. The senator was so shocked. He prom, you know, he, he, he feared that that kind of sentiment might come out of the president of the United States mouth publicly and undermine 40 years of uh, carefully crafted U.S.-Taiwan policy. Uh, and, uh, you know, since Trump isn't president anymore, the senator allowed me to put that in the book. But, you know, the, the reality is that if China had invaded Taiwan during the Trump presidency, there's a very, very distinct chance that the United States would not have done anything, or at the very least not have come to Taiwan's aid. And that's a scary proposition. Now, you can be sure dollars to donuts that the Biden administration would have a more robust response. Um, it would irrevocably change the U.S.-China relationship and, uh, you know, change foreign policy as we know it. But uh, that's not to say that the Biden administration's response is uh, 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 something that we can say that we know what it is right now. And uh, the, uh, the fact of the matter is that um, the policy has to be not about responding, but about deterring China from ever daring to do something that would be so damaging, not only to the people in the island and the, and the democracy that thrives on Taiwan, but also to the international order as we know it. Yeah, just, 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 oh, okay, Jason, go for it. No, please, Roger. Yeah, just some, just some quick thoughts. I mean, I, I think with Taiwan, um, it's, it's a really difficult question, especially obviously now we have a pan-green government that runs it, that is, that is itself trying to debate, you know, how much of a line can we get away with uh, establishing what is, right now the, the, the lie that we're all telling each other is that uh, Taiwan is a de facto, is it a de facto sovereign state? I mean, it, it just is at this point and how much de jure you want to give that credit is basically what's keeping this whole thing alive at this point, right? Like, is the PRC content that like it's kind of still in the realm of influence. Um, I think that there's a couple of things, there's like one factor that gives me optimism and then one factor that gives me pessimism. The, the pessimism part is that um, I think like to what Josh's uh, allegory alluded to, it's just, I have talked with so many uh, Chinese uh, nationalists who are, who are very aggressively see uh, taking Taiwan as like a central part of, of their pride and their identity. And I, I don't think you can expect that same kind of passion from the American people for defending. Now, I think if an invasion happened and it was very unjust, I think then you would see a natural rallying cry to, to defend democracies. I've generally seen very strong positive opinions of Taiwan. But um, that said, you know, for the current status quo, the level of engagement between the two populations is a gulf of difference. But on the positive side, uh, or, you know, um, I think Trump is wrong. I mean, the United States' largest carrier group is based in Okinawa, Japan. Japan, it's critical for Japan that Taiwan, because next, then Japan is shipping lanes are obstructed. And, and so I, I think that there are a lot of factors for why military planners and PATCOM and Pacific Command specifically, which I think is the, the most robust and long form of the uh, American military commands, especially now with the shift in focus from the Middle East. Um, I think those will be optimistic factors. Like I'm fairly confident the American policy elite are, are pretty robustly behind Taiwan. 
Thank you, Roger and Josh. Thank you, Bill. And guys, listen, we did it. We went two and a half hours. I can tell you that we had over 8,000 people who passed through this room at various points tonight. Um, some who stayed throughout the entire time and some who just popped in. Uh, clearly, we touched, in, you know, we touched on something with this topic. It's something people care about. It's something people want to learn about. And so I hope that if you're if you're here, you'll follow Roger and his clubs here on Clubhouse. He's having some really important conversations, nuanced conversations, bringing in different perspectives, you know, mainland, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Canada, US. And I think having that diversity of perspectives is critical when it comes to entangling all the various narratives and all the various histories that are at play here. Also, you can pick up Josh's book, follow his writing. He's easily findable on the web, Washington Post, CNN, other places. Um, you know, engage with these ideas, continue the conversation. And I think just if I can punctuate with a sort of take moderator prerogative here to sort of give a last closing thought, you know, listen, there's all the geopolitics, there's all the nationalist competition, there's all the, the intrigue uh, around what happens in Washington and Beijing. But for me, this matters because there are real people's lives at stake in this. There are people's lives in China at stake whether it be Uyghur populations, minority populations, Chinese citizens on the mainland, and there are Asian American and, and uh, Asian Canadian lives here on our side of the world uh, who are at risk from the xenophobia, from the inflammatory rhetoric, and from the conflation that we do between a Chinese national and an, a Chinese American who's lived here all their lives. And so that's why this issue matters to me, and it's why I think we need to continue talking about it on Clubhouse, in the media, in our education system, in our advocacy groups, um, this is really important to the future of the United States and to the world. And I, I'm so grateful to Josh and Roger for taking two and a half hours out of your time here to be with us tonight. So um, any last final thoughts before I wrap up the room? Otherwise, we'll close it down. Josh, Roger? No, I'm good. I just have one, one final thing. First of all, Jason, thanks for hosting the room. And uh, Jason, you mentioned Tianxia in the context of the rooms that we host, but one important thing I wanna offer up is Jason, if you or any other clubs are interested in having discussions about China, the Sinosphere, we are very happy to source speakers that have worked with us before and uh, really deep subject matter experts and all sorts of things. So just let me know through Twitter. Cheers. Love it. And uh, yeah, we will definitely come back to this topic and other related topics in History Club. This won't be the final conversation. So if you didn't get a chance to weigh in tonight with a question or a comment, I know there were a lot of hands. Please come back to History Club. We're going to do this more. We're going to have lots of different conversations. Ping me on Twitter or on Instagram if you didn't get in this time, and I'll make sure you get in for the next time that we have these types of conversations. Follow the club. Sign up for our newsletter, support the club if you're able, check out Josh's book, check out Roger's activities, and until we meet again, same bad time, same bad channel next week, have a great rest of your evening and have a wonderful weekend to everybody. I'm going to close out the room now. Thanks, everyone.